Hey listeners, if you like History of Horror Uncut, make sure to check out She Kills, a Shudder original podcast by, for, and about women in horror. Join icons like Jennifer Tilly, Barbara Crampton, and Dee Wallace as they talk with genre innovators like Karen Kusama, Emily Deschanel, and Alex Esso about representation, progress, and how modern takes on old female horror tropes have given women a platform like never before. Be sure to subscribe to She Kills and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. I'm Shutter curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli will lead the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayanga stepped in. Today is an Eli talk, and it's a treasure. Eli gets into it with his friend, his colleague, his peer, and one of our contemporary filmmaking legends, Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill, The Hateful Eight. He's no stranger to discussing and really showcasing his influences. But that mostly takes the form of exploitation and drive-in cinema, right? You know of his love for Russ Meyer, Sergio Leone, Lady Snowblood. But what follows today is a real treat in hearing how horror has left its mark on one of our boldest and most singular voices. Intensely conversational with his chum, Tarantino muses as really only Tarantino can. He talks the likes of classic horror, the trajectories of Brian De Palma and Roman Polanski, blood spatter stories from the set of Kill Bill, and Italian great Lucio Fulci. You might even need to break out a pen for some deep cut recommendations. I did. Here now is Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino. Listen up, ghouls. Okay, it's, I mean, we could talk for days and days and days and days. We first bonded over horror. Yeah. At Cabin Fever. Mm-hmm. I remember, actually, it was, remember when we met each other at the Spirit Brothers film, Undead? Yeah. Yeah, it was at the Ada Cost screening room. It was like, yes. Fangoria or something had written something about it, and yeah. then William Morris let me know that they were having a screening of it. And I remember the thing about it was, like, the Outback guy that has, like, the, the gun with the four barrels. Yes. Which they took from a New Zealand movie called uh, Utu. All right? Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of a classic image, all right, for New Zealand cinema, but never put in that genre in that kind, of kind of way. Yeah. And uh, so I was at the screening room, and you uh, at, the, at that screening at the Etikoff screening room, and you introduced yourself to me. I was so excited to meet. I remember yeah. when I was making Cabin Fever, I was trying to get it made, and I saw you at a restaurant. I think it was Birds. Uh-huh. And I was like, Mr. Tarantino, I mean, oh, uh-huh. and you were so cool. You're like, oh, man, very cool. Good on you. Go make a horror film. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't a jerk. No, you were so <laughs> nice. And then after that screening of Undead, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my movie, I'm going to have it done in three months. I would love to show you. And you mm-hmm. were like, oh, I totally want to see it. And then I saw you on the street, and you pulled up your car, and you went, Cabin Fever. Gonna watch it. And I was like, <laughs> he remembered. Like you, you, and then, of course, when you showed up at that screening at yeah, the yeah. Los Angeles Film Festival, mm-hmm. and you stayed for the Q&A, and then the next night, I always knew from watching your movies, you loved horror movies. Mm-hmm. Like, even though you hadn't made one, I remember watching them in college and thinking, like, this is someone who understands blood and violence and payoff. 
I mean, you must have, did you grow up loving them? Well, when we were at the Cabin Fever screening, you had a Q&A. You were going on and you were talking about, like, the slasher films of the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And you were talking about famous monsters and you were talking about universal horror and everything like that. And then I even asked a question. Mm-hmm. And I like raised my hand and go, well, you've been talking a lot about a, a lot of American stuff. I mean, are you a fan of the Italian stuff? And you go, oh, don't get me started. From the Italians, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't open up that can of worms. I didn't know if I was, well, I remember when we first started talking, it was like, we were talking about the font on a video box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From our favorite movies and how the rule as a kid was the larger the video box, the worse the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. three on a meat hook. Was yeah, like, right. <laughs> And they'd be like, oh, it's this little Evil Dead, this little gem. Yeah, right, That's exactly. Yeah, little e thorny in my box, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, like, was horror your favorite section, or one of your favorites, or just did it all go hand in hand with kung fu? Because I, I, well, 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 it depends on what you're talking about. You're talking about like when I was a little boy or older. Well, when you were a kid, like, what is what? I mean, I got hooked as a kid when I was three to five, six years old. Mm -hmm. I, that that yeah. was like when I got, you know, when I had my first shot of, mm -hmm. yeah, of yeah. horror adrenaline. When did it start for you? Uh, Do you have a memory of like a first horror movie you saw in a theater or one that was like totally forbidden that you saw on VHS? Well, anything. Wouldn't have been that forbidden by the time VHS came around. Right, I, was, I was old. Yeah, so when I was a little kid, three, four, five, really just starting to watch movies in a real way, uh, my two favorite genres were horror and old classic comedies. So my favorite actors back then were Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney Jr. and W.C. Fields and... So when you saw Abbott and Costello meet the mummy and meet Frankenstein, that was like the combination of, oh, well, it's like a kid's dream. When I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I, I literally thought it was the greatest movie that has ever been made and that ever possibly will be made because it literally was my two favorite things in the world put together. It was horror and it was comedy. And especially, you know, somebody like Jerry Lewis or Luke Costello, their whole infantile shtick mm -hmm. is to relate to the kids because they're like these imbeciles, all right? Literally infant adults. And so you relate to them. But the thing that I noticed, I noticed it in Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, but then when they showed Abbott Costello meet the mummy, I realized that there was a theme that they carried on in their Abbott Costello meets the monster movies was the fact that, yes, there was the comedy stuff. But then when, when the horror stuff happened and Abbott and Costello weren't in the scene, the horror stuff was played straight. Yes, it was and a real the, monster. Yeah, the, yeah it, was, it was the money. And then the music got yeah, scary. The monsters never broke character. Yeah, the monsters. Even the, they, they weren't aware they were in an Abbott Costello. The movie. monsters never broke character, and the people that they were going to kill never broke character. It was never silly, all right? Were uh, you a Dracula fan, or was it more Frankenstein Wolfman? Was there a particular monster that was your favorite? Did you like vamp? Because I know oh, obviously good Dust, Til yeah. uh, Dust Till Dawn, mm -hmm. you have such a great vampire moment. Yeah, I, th I think, yeah, I think uh, uh, um, the Wolfman. Really? Yeah, well, I take that back. Okay, the Frankenstein monster was my favorite, but like a close second in the Aurora uh, panels of the uh, great monsters of the past, uh, the Wolfman was a very close second. They were my Lennon McCartney. Yeah. All right, uh, 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 uh. I loved the image of the mummy, but I didn't really care for the mummy movies. They were too boring for me, especially the first one. I had the same problem. Yeah. I thought the mummy looked really, really cool. It was an awesome character design, yeah, uh -huh. but it moved slow and I was never scared of it. Yeah, it's also a, the Invisible no, Man. The, yeah, the drawings of him were amazing. 
Mm-hmm. And I would even like, and more than any of the other ones, that would be the one I would pretend to be when I was at my house because I put my little arm in a sling. Yeah, All right. <laughs> it was easy to be a mommy. You yeah. could use toilet paper. Uh, yeah, yeah, and just kind of like shuffle around. Now you look at the mummy and it's one of the classic, you know, it's one of the most artistic of the universal horror films. But as a little kid, it's very boring because he's the mummy for just a moment. And he's never that guy again. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh, the cheapy sequels were, well, that was, they, they had more action in them. And I liked them more. You know, to some degree or another, I even think Abin Costello meet Frankenstein ended up having, to some degree or another, an effect of me as an artist, i.e. the fact that at five, I was able to make genre distinctions. Mm-hmm. This is the Abin Costello slapstick comedy part of the movie. This is the universal horror film part of the movie. And this exists here, and this exists here, and then they combine them together. So now they're combining my two favorite genres together. And I was even able to make those distinctions that, oh, this is this type of movie, and this is that type of movie, and this is the best movie ever made, because they put my two favorite types together. And it influenced your storytelling. You know, I've been mixing and matching my favorite genres ever since uh, I started putting pen to paper. None of my movies are just one thing. They're always like a lot of different genres and subgenres crammed into it. I, it's now that I never thought of it that way, but that was one of my favorite. It was almost like the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the huh. stuff where you're like, you put your chocolate in my peanut butter. Yeah, and yeah, no, no, it's, no it's very much a chocolate and the, peanut butter situation. And then I yeah. threw in your films as well, yeah. <laughs> which was like, I can put in my favorite genres and mm-hmm. do the realistic violence. Well, look, I tried I, to blend, but I love that mixing genres. Yeah, well, I, well, people, I, I obviously do. I mean, but the, you know, but like, for instance, again, going back to Edmund Cassell and me, Frankenstein, when he picks up that nurse and lifts her over his head and throws her through that glass window and everything, she's dead. Yeah. That's it. It's not, oh, oh, hardy har har. All right. Like you get the impression that the, the castle is on a mountain. She just bounced off of every rock on the way to the, <laughs> on the way to her death. <laughs> and as a kid, you think about that. Yeah. Let's think about this. The Universal Monsters, because they were such like the architecture for modern horror. The mummy stays the mummy. If they mm-hmm. made the mummy today, it would be the mummy. The Wolfman would be the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. But vampires, just the concept of a vampire, yeah. Dracula, it's like, it's like that seems to be the monster mm-hmm. that it, it went into the comedy genre. It, John Badham did it. Then suddenly it becomes Twilight, then Interview with a Vampire, but and Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, but also, you know, then, uh, but you can't, as far as I'm concerned, you can't say Dracula without mentioning uh, Gene Colan's uh, Count Dracula in the Marvel comics, which is, I think, one of the most effective Draculas that there is. Interesting. What do you think it is about vampires the cyclical nature of horror that it goes out of style but it just comes back and it's like they get reincarnated in another form. Mm -hmm. You'd think that a monster that was first written in a book in Dracula and then it's done in the 1930s with Todd Browning and then the Hammer Horror. What did you think? Were you a Hammer Horror fan? I mean, you must have been a Hammer Horror fan. Yeah, uh, yeah, I definitely was. But like, you know, I don't think you can lump Dracula in with the other vampires. I think you you need need to make a dividing line. You know, you can have a bunch of vampires and you can have a bunch of zombies and you can follow the rules of the genre or werewolves, same thing. Mm-hmm. You can follow the rules of the genre that have been placed down by other movies or other stories or you can kind of come up with your own to some degree or another. And Bill, and sometimes and if you do it good, great. If you do it annoying, we all get mad at you like Dan O'Bannon and Return of the Living Dead. But I think that one of the reasons why Dracula has persisted for so long, as opposed to the Frankenstein monster, as opposed to the Wolfman or the Mummy, was he was a character. 
He was a genuine right. character. Now, the Frankenstein monster could be played as a character, and Boris Karloff did play him as a character, and, and there's been other versions that have done that. Michael Sarazen in the Frankenstein, the True Story TV movie it was pretty good, actually. I'm not even a Michael Sarazen fan, but he was actually pretty good in that. And, and there's been other things on it, and oddly enough, again, uh, bringing up Marvel Comics again, they did in the 70s a Frankenstein monster comic book that actually gave him the voice that he has in the uh, Shelley novel. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very interesting to read his dialogue in that. And it's, it's a pretty good comic, actually. But my feeling is, if they were making a new Dracula movie tomorrow, and if somebody were to say, oh, God, another Dracula movie, when are they going to stop that? As far as I'm concerned, as long as you have a good actor playing Dracula, you can make a Dracula movie every year. All right? It's just a cool character for the right actor to play. An interesting thing, like the first time I ever saw Dracula in a movie, was Bela Lugosi himself playing Dracula in Edmund Costello, Meet Frankenstein. That's the last time he ever played it, and the only time he ever played it, other than the, uh, of the Todd Browning movie. But it was interesting, though, because well, you'd watch a movie on, like, the 3.30 early movie on Saturday, mm -hmm. which is when, when something like that would have aired. Yeah, I remember. The Saturday afternoon was for Godzilla and then whatever monster yeah. movie could play on television. Exactly. And they, okay, uh, now we return you to uh, Bud Abbott, Luke Costello, Long J.D. Jr., and the Bela Lugosi in Amy Costello Meet Frankenstein. I didn't know Bela Lugosi was the name of a man. I thought all the horror film monsters and all the actors worked as a team, and the name of the team was <laughs> Bella Lugosi. Which makes perfect sense when yeah, you're five. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, you know, it, it's that would like be Monty like. Monty Python the, was a person. When yes, I was exactly. A kid. Yeah. Or, or to me, it was, no, it was closer to like the Justice League of America, all right? The all Bella those Lugosi. guys together were called the Bella Lugosi. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and it was only, you know, my stepdad said, no, that's, that's a guy. That's the guy who plays Dracula. Oh, really? Yes, and not only that, Quentin, when he was buried, he was buried in his Dracula cape. No kidding! Yes. Yeah, Frankenstein was definitely my favorite because he would be the ones that I'd have nightmares about or something. My father goes out and has to wrestle with him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, yeah, Frankenstein was big, and he threw kids down wells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dracula was charming and seemed very interested in the girls. And then also, but I wasn't really threatened by Dracula as a kid. You know, I wasn't For sure, Frankenstein Frankenstein will kill anything yeah. that gets in his path, not really understanding well, what Well, not only that, I had that, I had that record album that Boris Karloff narrated that was kind of a, the greatest of universal horror. It came out in like in the early 70s. And so it has all these clips, you know, sound clips from the universal horror as Boris Karloff kind of takes you through it all. And then the one clip that was truly terrifying, even more terrifying than when I saw it in the movie, was, I think it's in Son of uh, Frankenstein, basically the part that, uh, I think it's Albert Decker played him in the movie, but he was the part that Kenneth Mars parodied in Young Frankenstein, uh -huh. the guy with the metal arm. Yeah. And he tells the story of how he got his metal arm, and he's talking to the, like, the little boy of Basil Rathbone's, mm -hmm. uh, Frankenstein's grandfather. Yes, I was the child, no more than your son's age. <laughs> the monster was rampaging the countryside, killing, maiming, terrorizing. One day he broke into our house. I never didn't know that the Frankenstein monster was just bursting Rampaging into random the houses <laughs> and murdering families. Threw my father across the room. And then he grabbed me by the arm. It's quite a sound. The sound of your own arm being ripped out by the roots. Yeah, the 
That is horrifying. That's horrifying now. <laughs> yes. Just repeating it. <laughs> Especially to a young child. Yeah. Um, and remember, there's the whole thing in Son of Frankenstein where they're like two-year-old son, and the mon and Frankenstein is putting his big foot on him, it's holding him in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I remember when when those Hammer movies came out. Like to me, those monsters were all black and white because I, I guess I saw those first. And then I, when I was a little bit older, I started watching the Hammer films. And the girls were the most beautiful girls I'd ever seen, and I'd never seen blood. Like real, real mm -hmm. colorful blood. Well, here was the thing is, you know, because the name, oh, Dracula, oh, Frankenstein was such, you know, it was like Batman, all right? It was like, you know, they were these pop culture words that got me excited. So around that time was when they actually started showing the Hammer Horror film started getting played on television. You know, because most of them were released by one or seven arts. So they were actually getting played at night on the networks. The Dracula ones I liked. I'm, I'm sure for the most part, I found them boring. For me, as a kid, it took too long. To get to the good stuff. To get to the good stuff. But I do very much remember the end of the first one, Horror of Dracula, where uh, there's the light beam, the mm -hmm. beam of light coming in uh, through the shaft, and he takes the two candlesticks, and, and he gets in there, and he, he dissolves. Well, that was awesome. That looked, looked really amazing. Cool. And then I, I always remember the ends of them. Remember Brides of Dracula? My stepfather really liked that movie a lot. And the one where uh, there's the windmill, and Peter Cushing hangs on the blade of the windmill and until the windmill turns into a cross itself. Uh-huh. You know, and that was like this big thing. Mean. I was so excited when Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed was gonna air yep. on television. I was so excited to see that. I thought, oh, this is gonna be great. To me, Frankenstein had to look like the universal Frankenstein or... There wasn't Frankenstein. Or it wasn't Frankenstein. There was no way. Without the bolts, right, it's not yeah. Frankenstein. And then all of a sudden, it's like this wimpy, bald guy playing the monster, and I was just not into it. Yeah. I could see my parents were really getting into it, but I hated it. I thought it was yeah, just... It didn't count. I know. Dracula... It, it didn't count. As but far it's as what I you say. It's your but point. But now, I love that movie. That might be my favorite Hammer film of all time, is uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. And actually, I now prefer the Hammer Frankenstein series to the Hammer Dracula series. Really? One, well, but one, there's a couple reasons. One, because Terrence Fisher did more of them. And right. it, 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 to me, it's either Terrence Fisher or it's nowhere. But also, I liked the concept that they had because they couldn't use the Jack Pierce makeup design that Universal owned. And even they knew that was a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then what they did was they turned Dr. Frankenstein into the monster. And the real Frankenstein monster was, was always this, was a pathetic creature, a creature mm -hmm. that didn't ask for any of this and is very confused and has the most heartless father he could possibly have. And you felt sorry for the monster and you pitied the monster and you were just appalled by how truly inhuman and monstrous the actual human was. Do you remember the terror of watching Salem's Lot on television as a kid? Did you watch it when it was first broadcast? No, Did I that didn't. I remember, I remember when it was first broadcast. No, I was actually, unfortunately, or fortunately, I had just gotten into doing theater at that time. Mm -hmm. So that actually literally was on our rehearsal days and it was driving me crazy. Because you couldn't I, record I it. I couldn't see the Salem's Lot miniseries, but I did pick up the Laserdisc of it, which wasn't on video, it was the European cut of uh -huh. the TV movie. But on Laserdisc, it was the whole four-hour miniseries. Stephen King, because I interviewed King about that, mm -hmm. and he was talking about how Dracula was so handsome and romantic, and to him, vampires were always, like, disgusting and these yeah, yeah. awful, like, creatures from the dead. And that uh -huh. was, you know, yeah. part of what he did 
in Salem's Lot was to bring it back to that. I love the vampire makeup in Dust Till Dawn. You acting in that movie, being in that makeup, that was, that for me was one of the coolest reinventions. It's like every now and then there'll be like a full mm -hmm. reinvented twist on the genre. Writing that, being into that, was that something you wanted to do to bring it back to that hardcore vampire? Well, it was interesting because Robert Kurtzman, uh, who was the K of K&B, makeup effects, came up with the original treatment of it. And I read it and I, I think I fleshed it out more, but his vampires did kind of point in this weird direction that I had never quite seen before for vampires. They could turn human, I'm not human, they, they could take on the shapes of humans like they do in the Danny Trejo character or mm -hmm. the Satanico Pandemonium character. But their true selves were these bat-like creatures. And so we kept going with that. I kept pushing that and then K&B kept pushing that in the makeup. And Robert kept thinking it was a good enough idea to keep going with it, that they were very rodential. Their basisness was of a rodent creature, like a weird mix of a rat and a weird mix of a bat. Mm -hmm. And that's who they truly were. And I'm sure they don't even turn into Salma Hayek and they don't even turn into Danny Trejo. That's just some weird mass hypnosis. That they can do to people. Yeah. That they can do to people. But it might, so seem, if you, if you it might seem sexy that I'm sucking Salma Hayek's toes, but I'm actually sucking the toes of some <laughs> rat creature, all right? I just don't know it, all right? Uh, 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 she's controlled my senses. At the time, it seems great. Yeah, yeah, at the time, okay, you know, I was a massive nose. But there was this aspect about them that we started coming up with our own, okay, okay well, since this is, since we're basically kind of turning them into rats, I mean, literally to the point that when one of them I think it's the Tom Savini one, Sex Machine, actually turns into an actual rat. Yeah. All right, so that just shows you where I know, rat with a tail and everything. Since that was our idea, part of the fun part about that is, okay, so, you know, they're like bats living in a cave or a colony of rats living under a house. So I, I came up with a, a few of their uh, mythology things that would be specific to these creatures. One was, okay, yeah, they could definitely be killed by uh, a wooden stake to the heart. That still worked. Their blood was green. And the reason I made their blood green is because I knew there would be vampire blood all over the place. And it would be the color red, in particular, that would get you an R. But, uh, or in particular, an, an NC-17. Yeah, an NC-17. So if we made the vampire blood green, you could spray it all we over the place. We could spray it all over the place, and then the MPA wouldn't be so freaked out by it. that. And that ended up actually working. And because the mid-90s was a very restrictive time of movies. Yeah, it was very so restrictive. You look at now, it's like yeah. you can't even believe that was an issue. But in the mid-90s, that yeah. was like a period of Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah we were trying not to get an NC-17. We weren't trying to get an R. We were hoping yeah. for an R. Uh, but that actually even gave way to one of the better shots in the piece when I stab Danny Trejo in the hand, and then Juliette Lewis turns around and sees that the blood dripping off the blade is green. And says, oh, what's up with that? And then pretty, mm -hmm. then all hell breaks loose. So that ended up being the thing. But then I added one more thing to it. They could be spiked and staked, but once they died, it was a situation, and when they did the series, they didn't follow through on this, and it's too bad, because I think it was one of the things that was like the coolest of the mythology that we created was once they officially were dead, then there was like a beat of one, two, three, and they exploded. I mean, it was more like they flamed out. Yeah. And then they were just ashes. And the reason I thought that was an interesting thing was because a big fight, big 
massive battle, Vietnam battle, has happened in this bar. So there's alcohol all over the place. So they do that to one of the vampires, and now now the place is burning down. Right. <laughs> um, and the bats are outside trying to get in. You know, so to me, it was like a situation, and again, in all these alien sequels, they keep ignoring the fact. They don't ignore the fact that the alien's blood is acid. Is acid and can eat through things. It's just never a plot point anymore, where it was the plot point. The only of, plot point of, of the first movie. The you thing. couldn't just kill him. Because the thing is, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, now your, your ship, ship is going to explode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Melt right through. Just in Fish and Vampires, it feels like there's two schools. There's like people that like the Max Shrek, Nosferatu, Salem's Lot, Dust Till Dawn, and then there's Interview with the Vampire and Twilight. Do you have a particular camp, and how do you feel about when rules are changed, like vampires being able to sparkle? <laughs> I'm sure if I was uh, a 12 or 13 year old girl, I would love the Twilight books and I would love the Twilight movies. I can honestly say I've never seen a Twilight movie, but I'm not putting them down. I even remember somebody saying what's good about a Twilight movie is it makes everybody who watches it feel like a 13-year-old girl. It taps into that aspect of it. But okay, what was the other example? The other, with the, the Max Shrek, the other, the Salem's Lot. Yeah, but what was the other one like? Inter Interview with a Vampire. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting about that, I actually, I never saw Interview with a Vampire, to tell you the truth, but using it as a cultural link with homosexuality has been part of the vampire Empire mystique, but when you couldn't deal with homosexuality, you could deal with it to some degree or another in vampire movies, even going back as far as the 30s. Really? Yeah, well, Dracula's Daughter has probably the most famous lesbian sequence mm -hmm. in an American movie made in the 30s. I mean, you know, it's not exactly Mädchen in uniform, but that's a German movie. That she was... sends her ghoul, she sends her, you know, devoted slave chauffeur out to pick up a woman for her to feed on. And he says, oh, well, my mistress is an artist. He finds a woman, she's coming from a sensitive place. He finds a woman who's gonna commit suicide. And he goes, hey, you know, things aren't so bad. Come to my mistress's castle. She's an artist and she needs, she could paint a beautiful woman like you. She'll give you money. She'll give you a warm place to sleep for the weekend if you have to. Okay. And I was gonna kill myself, might as well. So she goes over and then when she sees Dracula's daughter, she's like, oh, wow. I was scared by the other guy, but she, oh, there's no reason to be scared whatsoever, you know? And she starts seducing her, basically seducing her by making her feel comfortable, making her feel open, mm -hmm. stand up against, you know, she has a little painting a canvas on an easel. The woman starts moving down her dress to show her, show her bare shoulders and is taking this position. And then eventually she bites her. Yeah, and, and, but the thing is, it is a seduction scene. Right. They are two people of the same sex. And, you know, and, and ultimately she kiss. ends up feeding on her, mm -hmm. sucking her dry. Even when it came out, Universal got a big, big uh, notice from the Hayes board about, whoa, you can't do this scene the way it's written. I mean, the suggestion of a female seduction is just right there. That's just, it's just there. It's not even subtext. Mm -hmm. So you need to calm this down so there's not even a suggestion of it. Well, this is the clean down version and it's nothing but suggestive. 
you know, and, and, you're, and you can't watch you can't watch it in a theater today without the giggling uh, goes on because it is what it is. I remember that when Interview with the Vampire came out. People well, they're they're putting it they're putting it up front, but you know, for years though, because it was one of the interesting things that until you took it into consideration, most people didn't think about was the fact that the kiss of a vampire it is sort of like a kiss. You are exchanging fluids, mm-hmm. and the fact that male vampires have male victims and female vampires vampires can have female victims. And as you well know, that showed itself more and more in American movies and then in Europe and France, Jean Roulon yeah. made a whole subgenre, whole sub-genre of the- on the female lesbian vampire movie. And it's, it was commonplace, in particularly in the 70s. Lesbians would say, oh wow, I, I just saw this magnificent movie about these two women that were in love and it, and it really played the relationship for all its worth. I mean, they're vampires, all right? But. but that's what, yeah. <laughs> well, this is one of the cool things about horror is that historically it's always been able to deal with taboo subjects. Yeah. And even zombies, mm-hmm. early being an early metaphor for slavery, yeah, and yeah. then Romero and Night of the Living Dead being a metaphor for racism, and then consumerism, <laughs> and now to dystopian society. Were you aware of that stuff as a kid? I mean, do you think that that's one of the reasons why horror still has that power? Or is it something deeper? Is it like, I know I'm jumping around, like horror is a social issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think people are aware that they're, they're watching it for those social issues? When they're well, watching it, or do you think they're just enjoying it on a primal level? You know, in the 70s, if I saw burnt offerings or something like that, I don't think I actually was thinking about any metaphors going on. But then a lot of the classic horror films or even science fiction films were presented to you that way. You know, I, I think I was you know, told about the McCarthy subtext in Invasion of the Body Snatchers before I even saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Because mm-hmm. that was what people who loved the movie, yeah, loved about it. Did you, I mean, I know you love Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's just mm-hmm. one of the all-time classics. Yeah. Do, you, do you have like a memory of the first time you saw it? It came out when it came out in the 50s and it did what it did. But in the 60s and early 70s, there became a whole spate of movies that most people didn't know about, but they kind of found them on late night television. And they weren't maybe even 100% sure what it was they saw. And so they walked around, maybe they didn't have a TV guide available. And so they walked around with this, you know, talked to their friends at Bridge. I, you know, I saw this weird movie. Yeah, on. we had a show called The Lenny Clark Show. They showed Son of the Blob. Yeah, yeah. So that- I saw this weird show on, on, and they don't know what it is, so they describe a weird scene to somebody and to see if it, it I still get that. Something. People come up, they're like, I, I, I have the scene from this movie that I saw on mm-hmm. TV as a kid and I don't know what film it is. So the thing is, I remember particularly, actually the movie was vaguely, uh, by the time I saw it, a little anticlimactic compared to my stepfather describing these disturbing yes. scenes from Invasion of the Body Snatchers and like two parents coming with a pod mm-hmm. and putting it in the crib of their child and them just kind of looking at each other. And I don't even know if I've ever seen that scene. I think he might have, you know. He might have made that up. Uh, he might have made that yeah. up. All right. I, I keep watching the movie I and I keep never seeing that scene. <laughs> and that was the scene he kept referring to. And I, I never knew what it was for 30 years. But a friend of my dad's described in detail the opening credits to the final shot of some movie about a maniac that is uh, taken over a family and is holding them hostage. And he described it to the nth, like I saw the movie. Yeah. It took me 35 years to realize what movie he was talking about. He was talking about Arch Hall Jr. in The Sadist. 
the, the so James put, yeah. Landis film. He was talking about, and I trust me, for those 35 years and I kept imagining the psycho who was the star yeah. of the movie, it never occurred to me it was Arch Hall Jr. That is so funny. And I even remember my, my dad's friend, his name was Don, all right? And, he goes, and this is the kind of guy that if you saw him crossing the street, you would hit the gas. He is that disturbing looking. It's weird how the... <laughs> like, Archibald Jr. is that disturbing looking? But it's weird how... He's like a sexy Michael J. Pollard. <laughs> <laughs> if Michael J. Pollard was like a rock star, he but would look people, like... I remember a... my, mom my, mom, my mom would let me watch The Exorcist, but I was not allowed to watch House of Wax. Because she had seen House of Wax when she was eight, and her memory was that House of Wax was the scariest movie ever made. There was two movies my mother did not allow me to see. One she didn't have to worry about because it was rated X. Which was? Uh, Andy, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. Uh -huh. But she didn't allow me to see, in its initial release, uh, The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. And there was a reason for that. You have to be at least as old as I am and be living with your grandparents where they get the inquire every week. The whole thing about The Exorcist was it may be too intense for human beings. <laughs> that it wasn't just a horror film in 73 when it came out. You were experiencing it, the devil. Yeah, you were way. experiencing the devil. And that people like committed suicide after they saw The Exorcist or people were put in insane asylums <laughs> after they saw The Exorcist. And every new issue of the National Enquirer had, my son went crazy and is in a straitjacket. You know, how it. watching The Exorcist ruined my life. I dream of reviews like that. Yeah, I, I, I just, that's like all I've ever wanted to get is the I, National I mean, Enquirer it, it story. Literally, you are taking your sanity in your hands to see The Exorcist. I didn't see The Exorcist till its 1975 re-release. And I saw it at a drive-in then. Did it deliver? Oh, yeah. No, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. I, I thought it was great. And The Omen. In my mind, it was a sequel to The Exorcist. Yeah. It was like a companion piece. Well, The Omen blew me away to some degree even more than The Exorcist because I had heard so much about The Exorcist. Again, it was one of those movies that adults would come to your house and talk about it if they saw it. So that was, for me, that was Jaws. It yeah, was like my yeah. parents, I would, they'd yeah. come over and go, you saw Jaws? Describe it to yeah, me. Yeah, I would hear totally, you know, like, oh, I didn't think that was so bad. All that vomit looked like uh, pea, soup. pea soup to me, so I didn't take it seriously. So My, I, it, my aunt described to me the decapitation Oh, uh, and in slow I remember okay, just that, making her describe it to me over and over. Well, that was the difference between The Omen and The Exorcist. You know, both The Exorcist and Enter the Dragon were two movies, again, because they came out in 73, and that was during one of my, that was during part of my Tennessee years. So I didn't see anything that came out unless it was at this one drive-in, and they didn't get anything unless it was three years old. So a lot of the 73 movies I had to catch later in re-releases. Same thing with Blazing Saddles. You know, they all came out in 73. Paper Moon. I had to see it with Bad News Bears later on. Yeah. I was features. one. I had yeah, to wait yeah. until I was conscious enough <laughs> yeah. to see them, but yeah. Why The Omen ended up blowing me away more is I hadn't heard anything about it. I knew the trailer, and, and the TV spot was very tame. They were really selling the whole Gregory Peck and the uh, wait, uh, Lee Remick. Gregory Peck in a horror movie. That was mm -hmm. kind of a big deal, having an actor of his stature. Yeah. I mean, Max von Sydow, the, that was a thing in the 70s. No, but it was, like, no, classy. It, it started a thing, though. Well, let me get back to my point so I yeah, can sorry. finish making it. Yeah, with the Omen TV spot, 
It seemed like a very tasteful horror film. They really emphasized the Gregory Peck of it all. They really emphasized the Lee Remick of it all. They would show the little Damien character. You know, maybe they show the uh, the baboons going crazy. Other than that, it seemed like a older person's classy horror film. And then you see it. And I wasn't prepared for how scary it was gonna get. I wasn't, you know, forget about the, the gore in it. Didn't see that coming at all. The but dog, you know, just the, the, the Rottweilers surrounding them in the graveyard was like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? But then the decapitations, I mean, that just, I never saw that coming. And I was like, that was one of those man called horse moments where like, oh my God, what am I seeing happening? And the way that the, the, the head slow was sp motion, yeah, that spinning around. And also the special effects come around to the fact where you could have a kill mm -hmm. in broad daylight, in yeah. slow motion. That reminds me of the kill in Death Proof, when the girls yeah, yeah. go through the window oh, in yeah, slow yeah. motion. Uh, yeah. That feels like your version of an Omen-style kill. Yeah, well, it was actually funny because like, you know, I had an uncle who was the one that was kind of the most into movies of my family. Like his brother, my stepfather, Kurt, was really into movies, but Cliff was even more. And he gave a great review of Omen 2, because I remember he saw uh, Damien Omen 2. And I go, oh, what did you think about it? Eh, it was okay. Go, oh, what, what did you like? Well, you know, in the Omen, we don't really know that Damien is the Antichrist. Neither does Gregory Peck. So through the movie, there's an investigation going on. You don't know everything. Now, yes, people who find out about him are killed, but you still don't know everything. It's not until somewhere towards you know the beginning of the second half that you really come to terms with the fact that they're harboring the Antichrist. So the movie has a story to tell. And then it's gonna be, what do they do about it? And Damien Omen too, we know that from the very beginning. So the entire movie is people finding out about it and then they die. <laughs> It's true, it's true. I love the bifurcation. Oh that yeah, like, that, that, That's why I, kill, I cut myself in half in Cabin Fever because of the bifurcation in Omen 2 and because of yeah. uh, the mutilator. Okay, look, that's a great set piece in Omen 2, but it's obviously their attempt to, okay, how do we outdo the pane of glass scene? We're just like, the right, camera goes, yeah, ah! yeah. And the guy's there and it's yeah, just Yeah, but basically, from the, you know, but from that point on, the Omen movies basically become slasher movies uh, because it's just about true. the kills. You're just waiting for the next kill. But you are correct about bringing up the idea that it was a thing that Gregory Peck was in The Omen because he was a, a 50s era, established, older Hollywood legend that was now appearing in this horror film. And he gave it, and along with Lee Remick, gave it this patina of class. And then that became a thing for a while, getting these 50 era stars to front. Glenn Ford and happy birthday to me. Yes, uh, well, I would say he's, uh, he, he, he fits, but he's not quite the front. No, right. I think Jack Nicholson in The Shining, Donald Sutherland yeah. Invasion of the Body Yeah, well, Snatcher. Jack Nicholson in The Shining wouldn't count as a 50s era, no, but, you know, but, uh, of, well, but the examples would be, obviously, William Holden in Damien, Charlton Heston in The Awakening, George C. Scott in The Changeling, the Changeling. Kurt Douglas in The Fury, mm -hmm. and in The Omen ripoff, Holocaust 2000. You know, so that became a thing. In fact, not only that, it was De Palma his feeling, as good as Carrie did, the Omen did better. Carrie would have done as good as the Omen if somebody as famous as Gregory Peck was in it. That there wasn't really? anybody famous enough in Carrie. I think he's wrong. Yeah, he, I mean, because you can't imagine it without Piper Laurie yeah, or he, any of that cast. Yeah, he got it all just in his head that not, that, not that the film should have been recast, but if there had been a role, a lead role, 
for one of these older stars, it would have done even better. And so that was why, in particularly, he, he gravitated towards the Fury because he could put a Kurt Douglas in it. Really, the Fury, that was his response. The book was its own book, and it's a pretty good book, all right? But the reason they're going to him with it is because it's about telekinesis, and he even redoes scenes from Carrie in it, basically. But part of his real attraction was being able to stick up an established movie star. I feel like I saw things out of order. My order was I saw Exorcist, then I saw The Omen, and everyone's like, you need to see Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And after those two movies, as a kid, it was a letdown. Yeah, I yeah. watch it now, but what was your feeling when you saw Rosemary? Do you remember when you saw Rosemary's Baby? Well, I don't think I actually... your feeling on it? No, I don't think I actually saw Rosemary's Baby. I missed Rosemary's Baby. I think through my childhood, I think when I finally saw it, I don't think I saw it even from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. I think it was just I'd seen, it was on television and I saw little clips from it. But I remember when it came out. I mean, there was like the two scariest graphic posters of, mm -hmm. you know, when I was four and five, where it's like the pictures of the guy's eyes from In Cold Blood. That, that poster was always really scary. And then the crib, yeah, the crib on the Rocky Mountain was always really scary to me. I didn't actually end up seeing Rosemary's Baby from beginning to end, frankly, to tell you the truth, until fairly recently in the last six years was like the first time I really? sat down and watched Rosemary's Baby from beginning to end. It was one of those things I, I felt like I'd seen it. And I'd heard I know and I'd I have seen... that. I get movie shame about movies I know I'm supposed to see. That yeah, now I, I... you sort of like tell people you've seen them, but you really haven't because you people be like, how could you not have, you know, that outrage. Well, but well, it's like it's never high enough. Oh, the mutilator. The whole last five minutes of the mutilator is so amazingly so great, beautiful. You know? That's my father. Bloody buddy. That's Hunger. my. It's also just like there's that's no. That's my fucking father. That's the, the mutilator is one of those slasher. <laughs> mutilator is one of those. <laughs> The, what I love about The Mutilator is it's one of those slasher movies that they don't even try to make you guess who the killer is. It's like, yeah. what? My dad's out of the insane asylum. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not even a guy in a mask. It's just a guy. And what does he yeah. do? Wow, okay, just, well, the king of that is mutilates. Final Exam. All right. Final exam, that, yes. that literally is like somebody's dad, right? Yeah, in it's a, my dad. Yeah, yeah, in a Travis Bickle suit is killing yeah. everybody. <laughs> Mutilator really grows as you watch it. Of course. Right? And it, the last five minutes is just, it all comes to fruition. But I, like, I think Rosemary's Baby is actually one of the greatest movies ever made now and stuff. But it was one of those ones that I ended up missing it. It was just so famous mm -hmm. by the time. And also, uh, for some reason, I never took it home to watch it on, on video. And I didn't really want to watch it on television, you know, because what? usually did, did before video cassettes, when a movie, when a, when a cool movie ended up on television, Lowell, that was the death of it because right. they were going to cut the crap out of it. Uh, so I never wanted to watch it then. I just saw little sections of it. But you know, there's an interesting thing about Rosemary's Baby is in Polanski's autobiography, he didn't want anything supernatural to happen during the course of the movie because he wanted Rosemary to be an unreliable narrator. He wanted you to feel that she could just be crazy. Mm -hmm. Nothing supernatural happens for the entire course of the movie. You know, she could just be paranoid. She could be suffering from some weird pregnancy delusions. All of her fears of the neighbors and the things that they're doing, all of it is absolutely circumstantial evidence. She could just be a paranoid freak. Even to the point when she goes to her, uh, Charles Grodin, her first doctor, and even when, you know, sinister Dr. Saperstein says, you know, if you don't quit messing around, we're gonna take you straight to an insane asylum. Well, if she was actually really flipping out, that's probably what they would say to her. Even, you know, the lovemaking scene, mm -hmm. well, that could just all be a dream. That's a really interesting point. You know, it's not until she actually says, you know, what have you done to his eyes? 
that there is a finally a physical manifestation of what she's of been talking about. And after that, Polanski, I mean, it's 1968 that movie comes out mm -hmm. in Hollywood. There's no hotter director than Roman Polanski. Oh, he was, a, he, was, he was the most, he was the hottest director, most famous director in, in the world. Now, what, it, what do you think it was about that one movie? Because there had been a lot of hit movies, but what was it about Roman Polanski and that movie that made him an international world famous superstar? Well, it was that movie. That movie caught a wave. That movie made $30 million back when movies didn't make $30 million, not in their first one. If a movie made $12 million, oh wow. That's it's a huge a, hit. That's a smash. My Fair Lady would make $60 million or $70 million. Sound of Music would make $60 million or $70 million because they played for three years straight continuously and every family in America saw it, saw it like three times. So to make in your initial run, make $30 million in a movie that they're being rather prohibitive about who and who can't see it, it was a phenomenon. And The Devil had never been dealt with in, in, in that realistic a form before. A horror film had never seemed both so completely realistic, completely living in the world that we you know, the, know. The Vidal Sassoon haircut, the yeah. music, everything about it. And then yet be terrifying. It was also the explosion of uh, Mia Farrow as, mm -hmm. a, as an icon, as a style icon. Twiggy could have played that part with the Sassoon haircut, mm -hmm. with her Peyton Place lineage, with then the whole Frank Sinatra of it all still attached to everything. It, you know, it was an absolute phenomenon. Probably the closest, most recent phenomenon would be Get Out that caught fire. Some people consider that a possession movie. I always think of it as a mad scientist film. Do you think in a way Get Out can fall into the possession category? I think it straddles both. Well, it definitely is a possession movie. In The Exorcist, they make the case that Reagan is trapped deep inside. And then she does her moments of reaching out, the carving the help of me. help me on her belly. Yeah, she's in some form of the sunken place. Yeah, she's in the sunken, she is in the sunken place. She is, ve you know, she is semi-aware of what's going on and she's doing what she can. And there are the moments when the demons are weaker and she's able to make herself known. I, I think The Exorcist is, I think it's the greatest horror film ever made, and that's the horror film that I think that will never be duplicated. Because he went to a place that just nobody will go to in a movie, with her stabbing herself with the cruise. They just dealt with it in such a real way. Yeah. And, like, and, well, like a drama, it, it unflinching. Truly, well, yeah, and it truly was, you know, in its own way, even more than The Wild Bunch and The Godfather. It showed you where you could go in New Hollywood. And I just can't, frankly, imagine any other filmmaker making a movie anywhere near The Exorcist that would be as sincere as Freakin was. There was a sincerity to his approach. Some of that sincerity might be because he thinks the horror genre is this piddling trifle, so he's gonna bring it up to a new level. But normally that means classing it up. He extremed it up. You know, but he had the, he had the book. These things happen in the book. It was a world where at least the industry was ready for it, even if the public wasn't, but then that's what they loved about it. But I mean, but there is just this level of terror that exists to this day that has not dated one iota. I have a, a movie theater in uh, Los Angeles, a revival house called The New Beverly. You know, usually on October, it's uh, all horror films, the entire calendar. But what I look for for our midnight movies is usually on our Saturday midnights, we change it up. But what I try to do on October is find a bona fide horror classic that is 100% held the test of time, that everyone knows about it, 
Most people have seen it, but maybe they haven't seen it on film in a good print in a while. Or maybe they've never seen it or it's been 20 years since they've seen it with an audience reacting to it. But a bona fide, across the board, modern day horror classic, not showing the black and white ones. So far, once I started that, The Exorcist was the first one and it killed. It absolutely killed. Just people were just terrified. The second one was Rosemary's Baby, and that played magnificently. And the third one was uh, Ridley Scott's original Alien. But frankly, the only other one to be shown that would fit into that category would be Jaws. That's kind of it. When it comes to bona fide classics that can go back 30 years, it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the little movie that broke out, but no, but actual Hollywood studio, Hollywood studio classic movie. Why do you think Get Out became it, we knew it was going to cross over into something, but the, the movie, I mean, Quiet Place is kind of doing that now. Yeah. But Get Out was legitimately, like everyone started talking about the sunken place as a point of reference. Yeah, yeah. It's so, he caught something in that movie. What do you think yeah. clicked about people? Because you're so tuned into black audiences and that cinema. I mean, we can talk about going back to Blackula, tracing Blackula to this. I don't know. What do you think caught fire with that movie? I, I think it was two things. For a black audience, it was a movie they had never seen before but always wanted to see, even though they didn't know they always wanted to see it. True original movies are that. They're filling a bill that you didn't know that there was a lack of. Black audiences are very aware that there is a dearth of, of movies being made from a black perspective. They know that, but they didn't know that this was necessarily what they wanted to see until Jordan Peele made it. It spoke to black audiences loud and clear. And there is a thing with black audiences when a movie feels insidery. It's made for them. And then there's a certain level of laughter going on in the audience that the white members of the audience aren't quite sharing. There's a certain insight that the black audience gets because they know that the movie's hip and they get it and they're talking to them. They're not talking to everybody in the mm -hmm. audience. They are being spoken to. And it doesn't happen that often. You know, and so that's a really special thing. So I think definitely that is involved. Why I think white audiences responded to it so much is there's some aspects of that that they can get as well. But ultimately, why it crossed over to such a good way, I think it was just the storytelling involved. There is a genuine mystery going on in the case of Get Out. Until somebody ruins it for you and tells you about everything, you really don't know where it's going. The audience knows, okay, there's something weird about this family. There is definitely something weird about those black servants. There's something weird about this whole damn place. But exactly what, you don't know. But now you're really watching because now you're watching a mystery. Now you're watching for something to, to clue you in. In the case of Get Out, you felt you were in good hands. Okay, I don't know, but I will know. They, they know what they're doing. There was a confidence to the movie. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele knows exactly what he's doing. And we're gonna, just going to have to wait for it. As a storyteller, I think one of the most exciting moments that can happen in a movie theater with a bunch of strangers is when you feel them watching the movie to such a degree, like really paying attention to it, and then something is revealed that clears up a little something. Or, oh, you're, the picture isn't fully done, but now you can see a few of the trees. Now the outline of the barn and the landscape is starting to come into effect. All right, and that is the moment when he it's goes the through the old photos. Which, by the way, is a timeless horror trope that when <laughs> yeah. done right, whether it's the yeah. others, like yeah. finding the box with the photos whenever yeah. you see right. that in a movie. Uh -huh. And he made it fresh. 
He made it fresh and, you know, he just deserves all the props for that in the world because one, you had what I mean when it comes to that moment that you're waiting for that's so exciting is when the audience does a collective, ah, and you have that moment happen. You have that moment happen in Get Out. Everybody who saw Get Out, who didn't see it on a matinee with only four other people in the theater, but if you saw it on the weekends with a lot of people in the movie theater, the audience does a collective, ah. But it's the best kind of collective awe because he doesn't tell you everything. There is still a whole lot more to be known, but now you're getting a sense of where this conspiracy lies. And now you, you don't quite know that the white girl is to the degree she is the villain. You don't quite know, but you know there's something shady about her now that you didn't know before. And it's the really seeing the older black maid in the younger guys that you really, oh, okay, this is really effed up. This is not just white liberalism being awkward. <laughs> yeah, this is weird. This is weird. Do you think Blackula, which was fully targeting black audiences, did audience have the same reaction? Are you a fan of Blackula? I mean, did, was that combining horror and black exploitation? I, like, I don't like Scream Blackula Scream. I think Scream Blackula Scream is really silly. All right, I can't quite judge Blackula as a horror film, but I loved William Marshall in it. Yeah. Because William Marshall was this really terrific uh, Shakespearean black actor. Every time he had appeared in almost anything else, you know, he's always the... Abby? Uh, well, no, no, that's another horror film. But, but the stuff he did before that, you know, he was always a tribal leader on Ron Eli's Tarzan. Or he's an African representative at the UN, an I Spy episode. Or uh, he's one of the politicians in either uh, The Boston Strangler or Twilight's Last Gleaming. He's always like, because of his diction. Mm -hmm. He's also the king of cartoons mm -hmm. on uh, Pee Wee's Big Yes, Playhouse. of course. Blackula was, it gave him a really great role for him to really giving it his Othello best in it. And I think the rest of the movie is fairly silly, all right? But his performance has a lot of dignity and he looks magnificent in his outfits. And I like- true, it's, and it's, it's, it's true, it's And it's fun to watch him beat up the cops. Who does Blackula fight? The cops. <laughs> but it's true, it's a Shakespearean actor yeah. in a black exploitation film. Yeah. You actually didn't see that style of acting often in those types of movies. Possession. Do you remember the first time you saw Evil Dead? I mean, Evil Dead for me was like taking yeah. the most terrifying parts in The Exorcist and just jacking it up and multiplying it with six characters right from the opening scene. Yeah. I saw that at the right age. Do you remember mm -hmm. when you first saw Evil Dead? Yeah, I saw, I'm sure I saw it the day it was released. I'm sure I saw it that Friday because I was waiting for it because I read the Fangoria cover that had Ash with the, with the chainsaw with the chainsaw on it and Stephen King, I have just seen the, the scariest movie of this decade or whatever because it had played at Mifed or something. That was the news about it. There would be, you know, movies like The Dorm, The Drip Blood or something would get coverage in Fangoria, but they wouldn't go apeshit over it. You know, this they went apeshit over. I think I'd read an interview with uh, Raimi and, and Tappert before I even saw the movie. So I saw it the day it opened. That was, that was like what made me want. And that, as a kid, was like, the fact that he was 21 and did it in the woods, I was like, you don't have to be from Hollywood to make a movie? Oh, yeah. That was the first time I conceptualized that. And like, that was great. And the Coen brothers with Blood Simple was great. But then, even though there was crime wave in between, then they follow it up with Racing Arizona and Evil Dead 2, which in my generation of young guys. Those were the two best movies made in our lifetimes. I know, that was for me, Evil Dead 2, yeah. for sure. Evil Dead 2 and Racing Arizona and the crazy way they shot it with all the, the camera 
doing all this stuff that we had never seen before. With Three Stooges humor thrown into the most violent horror movie you'd ever seen. It was like taking the violence of the Three Stooges seriously. Yeah, yeah. And both Raising Arizona and Evil Dead 2 just keep trying to top each other with their weird camera shots and whatever. If you're a movie-mad young guy in your early 20s, and you see Raising Arizona, and you see Evil Dead 2, and you see that, that shooting style, it's like, well, what's the point of ever shooting any movie not like that? I know. All right, that seemed like, okay, a new shooting style has been developed, and everything else looks old-fashioned by comparison. Well, that like- Every single thing just seems old-fashioned and dated unless you're doing that. Where all the older critics are, okay, well, what's gonna happen the day they make a real movie? Right, uh -huh. but as a kid, when I first saw the first shot of Evil Dead, when the camera starts moving, there's the first thing of, how are they doing this? But I was yeah. also like, oh, this is what a demonic spirit point of view shot. Like, we'd seen the shark POV. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. But never the demonic spirit point of view going through the cabin and that, yeah, oh, boom, man. and the doors fly off and everything, yeah. It's the scariest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. And then you play the tape and it's just in the fucking, the bile and the gore. And, uh -huh. with, and even that it, it sort of had that basket case, yeah, yeah, 16 yeah, yeah, yeah. millimeter stop motion yeah, animation know, quality. Yeah, uh -huh. I fucking loved it. There was also something else about Evil Dead that made it also kind of particularly cool was, well, you had to get it. Not everyone could get it. It was cheap. You had to be able to not just look beyond that, you had to embrace that. And also it is scary, but there is a really weird sense of humor that if you're not, in line with it, you're gonna think, oh, that's just a piece of junk. And so you had to get Evil Dead 2. And if you were smart enough to get it, then, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. You're not gonna show it to your aunt or your mom and have them accept it, or even some girl you know, have them accept it. When we watch Evil Dead 2 and we see the little model car going on the bridge, we think that's the height of creativity. It's brilliant. Somebody else is like, that's a cheap model car, what the fuck? But then you wind up working with, I mean, probably four years later, mm -hmm. five years later, you're working with K&B on yeah. Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. That must have been awesome. I mean, I, I know when I worked with Howard Berger, mm -hmm. and when I finally met Berger and Nick, all I did was pump them for stories for Evil Dead and Evil yeah. Dead 2. How conscious of that, when you were making your first movie, thinking about K&B, doing the blood, doing the, I remember for me mm -hmm. that Reservoir Dogs, and we don't have to go too far into Reservoir Dogs, mm -hmm. but just the feeling of getting to finally do that yeah, yeah, and getting yeah. to finally pump the blood. That was the most, for me, when I did, well, look, I you made, did a, look, look, you did a horror film. We didn't really have that, uh, our <laughs> thing, all right? You know, you did a horror film. So you had to come up with, oh, okay, this is, this is disease, uh, flesh-eating disease stage one. This is flesh-eating disease stage two. Okay, now Jordan Ladd in the, in, in the uh, shed is like this. I really didn't get into that. Get to right. do that. Look, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. trying to do Evil Dead. I, I, in a weird way, Cabin Fever was my version of a possession movie. It's like, there's the thing, it gets in your body, that's your friend, but you gotta kill that thing. Right, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, that always freaked me out. That thing in Evil Dead of like, you're going somewhere with your friends and you're killing them, mm -hmm. but you have no choice. It's just, now they're the Well, same. you have no choice, but then at the same time, the weird irony of cabin fever is nobody dies from the fucking disease, all right? They die, <laughs> they get the disease, but they die from their friends or from random people. Nobody, we don't even know if the disease would kill you. It doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> that was the whole idea, was that if they just left them alone and came back two years later, they'd be super decayed, but they wouldn't have died from it. Yeah, yeah. They might have died from other things, right. but they would never, <laughs> the disease never kills you. And then like, and, and, and when Ryder Strong is this now caving in skulls with, with, <laughs> with, with shovels, you think he's gone rather extreme. <laughs> but, the, you know, but you know, at that very first screening, with mm -hmm. the AFI festival mm -hmm. that I saw, and I'm sure it was repeated all over America when it played. The moment when like we know the river is full of this disease crap 
and then he's got to get something out of the river, and then the ladder it. breaks, and he falls right in Onto the, body. the muck. The entire audience just jumped out of their skin, just screaming, because the worst thing that could possibly happen just happened. I love, I mean, for me, that was, I felt like on Kill Bill, you had license to spray blood. Yeah, yeah. And that was where you finally, it was like a pressure buildup, this just release, yeah. and you knew. And I'm, yeah, and I'm and, gonna do it the Japanese style. So it's oh. all Shogun Assassin, all right? People have garden hoses for vein. And you can ask Howard Berger, I was a tyrant on that because they weren't doing the blood right. Too many tubes, I'm seeing too much, this is crap. It's not spraying out the way I want. What is this crappy color? That's not the color we said. Okay, now it looks like uh, Delaware Punch. What's going on with that? <laughs> what the fuck did I bring you guys to China for? Uh, um, and then like in the last three weeks, when we knew that, okay, the, the House of Blue Leaves is coming to an end. Not the last three weeks of the House of Blue Leaves, but that would still be in the middle of it. But like, it's running its course. We've done it. We've done it. We're just wrapping it up. Howard Berger was like, gosh, I mean, I can't believe we're going to get through this sequence without one last Quentin blood tirade, yelling at the top of his lungs uh, uh, <laughs> about what, what idiots we are and how the effects just don't work. Because, you know, they were on the hot seat. Mm -hmm. They're on the hot seat. We're all waiting around for them. So they're either heroes or bums. All right. So they either they're the hero of the shot or you guys are fucking bums. Uh, we're all waiting around for you, and, I, and this is what you give me. And he goes, oh, I can't believe we're getting, we're, there's not going to be one last Quentin blood tirade. And then something happened that was supposed to go, and then instead of went, and so it's like, God damn it, da 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 And then like Howard and Chris Nelson, no, 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 that's not, a, that's not a Quentin blood tirade. You're not even mad. <laughs> yeah, that's just for effect. That's no tirade. That's a fake tirade. That's yeah. a fake tirade. Yeah, that's no Quentin. I guess we, I guess we got out of the woods, right? Because there's no more tirade in you. I directly benefited from your tirades uh -huh. because the movie they did after Kill Bill was hostile. Mm -hmm. And... When we went to talk about blood, Howard's like, oh, do I know about blood? He was a sommelier. He's like, would you like an 82 Bordeaux? Would you like a Pinot Noir? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Knew ex he knew, because I'm like you, very specific about the color. And then I didn't realize, okay, blood that goes on metal, blood that goes on a shirt, like dark clothes is this, blood that goes on skin. Yeah. I mean, the light, it, well, everything also, yeah, changes. Well, that, well, that's the thing, is they get used to, oh, everything is the blood that you can put in your mouth. All right, and everything is the blood no. that you put on your clothes or on your skin, but you put that on metal and it looks like exactly what it is. It looks like raspberry pancake syrup and it looks like shit. It's so weird. You know, but in Japan, it's, no, it's, they use paint. That's why, you know, you watch uh, uh, the really cool bloody samurai movies and then they cut some guy's head off. And, uh, you know, there's just the little part of the samurai blade that touch blood and it's all thick and there's a little dripping from, you know, and that's this paint kind of process. So it's like this sharp red against beautiful. The, the stainless the steel. The Italians had beautiful red yeah, blood. That was yeah. so, which did you see first, Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead? Or Day of the Dead? I think it turned out that I ended up seeing Dawn of the Dead first. I knew all about Night of the Living Dead, but I think Dawn of the Dead was, was my first time seeing it. The first time I saw Night of the Living Dead was actually a pretty interesting screening because I knew it was showing up on television. And I was at an adult party. It was when I was 16, saying I was older, working mm -hmm. in a community theater. And I'd what always wanted to- What did you do at the community theater? Oh, I was acting in plays. Okay. And, but I was hanging around all these adults. I, you had to, I, I said I was 18 so I could 
do the plays there. And so they were having one of their parties that Saturday night. And at one o'clock, they were showing Night of the Living Dead. And I finally, I'm going to finally see it. So I don't even know whose house this was. I went into some, I went in the bedroom and turned on the TV and I ended up watching it to the very end. And then what when that was say? over, I went out and joined the party. <laughs> what did you think when you first saw Night of the Living Dead? No, I thought it was fantastic, but I was blown away by the ending. When Dwayne Jones gets killed, I was blown away. I, that to me, I was like, I heard this movie shocking. I heard it, and I remember being yeah. in pain, mm -hmm. upset. I'm not, almost feeling ripped off, but uh -huh. so angry at those mm -hmm. guys. I totally ripped it off from Kevin Faber yeah, 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 also. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but you don't quite feel the same because he's an asshole. Yeah, yeah. But Dwayne, that was a fucking ballsy thing of Romero to cast oh. Dwayne Jones as the lead and oh, not yeah, even make absolutely. a deal out of his race, even though it's all right there in the subtext. Yeah, yeah. But him as a white filmmaker in Pittsburgh making movies about mm -hmm. race in 1968, mm -hmm. Well, he follows, you know, he carries it through in, in, in the first four dead movies that like, there is always this black male mm -hmm. leading character that, you know, our mutual friend Elvis Mitchell has been working on this thing of the top 10 seminal, basically black movies, for lack of a better term, starting in the late 60s and basically ending at the end of the 70s. His two bookends, number one is Night of the Living Dead and the other, on the other end of the spectrum, the last official one is The Wiz. really, really good one that doesn't get mentioned that much because it, it wasn't a hit when it came out. But it was one of the, their first, one of the studio's first attempts to try to really parlay uh, the success of uh, Rosemary's Baby was Paul Winco's uh, The Mephisto Waltz. That is really terrific. It's with uh, Alan Alda, and I'm not really even that big of an Alan Alda fan, uh, but Alan Alda and uh, Jacqueline Bissett and Barbara Parkins and Kurt Jurgens. Alan Alda is a failed pianist who is, uh, uh, he's gone through the classical training, but he ultimately really didn't have what it took. Uh, so now he's a journalist writing about classical music. Kurt Jurgens plays a uh, beyond the beyond maestro who's come into town to do a concert. And Alan Alda is sent there to interview him. And already you realize that there's something weird about Kurt Jurgens' character because his daughter kind of acts, played by Barbara Parkins, acts as his manager. And it's obvious they have like a disturbing relationship for a daughter and a father. But they seem more interested in Alan Alda than even he is in them, even though the pianist is a superstar. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what you realize is basically the pianist is the spirit of this great pianist that has been kind of around for like maybe even a hundred years or 150 years. And it needs to find a new host. And it's the devil. It's like they make a pact with the devil. The thing on the- you know, And that's the, what they're grooming The thing on the out. floor and everything, all right? He's got to know pentagrams He needs that. to know music. He needs to be able to read music. And he needs to have some breadth of talent to some degree. And then, now it's Kurt Jurgen, it's time for him to, you know, they need a new body. He's getting too old. And so it's going to now be Alan Alden. And so he goes for it. But his girlfriend is almost like the reverse of Rosemary's Baby. His girlfriend is Jacqueline Bissett. And she starts realizing, well, whoa. When did he start becoming so good as a pianist? And then now all of a sudden he's become a superstar. 
but he's just very different and his whole attitude is completely different. And little by little, she starts figuring out that he sold his soul to the devil to be this great pianist. That's the setup of the movie, and I, that's more or less, I think, probably what you would read in a much shorter version in even the Leonard Maltin movies on TV if you, if you looked up Mephisto Waltz in it. What you're not prepared for is the last 20 minutes. It, is, it goes in its own direction story-wise. I'm not saying it's graphic or anything, but it goes its own direction so completely that you're really not prepared for the last 20 minutes of the movie in the way they wrap up the story. And basically what Jacqueline Bissett does when she finally, after she's playing detective to figure out what's going on, once she realizes what the deal is. It's a really good movie. And Paul Winkos is a terrific director. And I've, n- I've never seen it. I, I probably confused it with the movie Mephisto from 1980. Yeah, you probably did, yeah. The Mephisto was Waltz. Like, it was like the Mephisto subgenre. Yeah, there's a, yeah, exactly. And one, they, they both deal with the same subject, all right? They both are metaphors for the character of Mephisto who sells his soul mm-hmm. for art. But Paul Winkos also did a lot of the great TV horror films. You, you mentioned... Uh, we were um, talking about Salem's Lot. Yeah, you, you mentioned... But also you mentioned, uh, oh, Glenn Ford. And that, well, actually, Glenn Ford was the first to get on that bandwagon of like a classy 50s era actor starring in a horror film. He did a real famous TV movie in the very early, like in 71, called Brotherhood of the Bell, which also kind of is a bit of a jumping off point from Rosemary's Baby and Salem's Lot. He moves to a town and it turns out this town is run by... I think they're Satanists, something like that. You know? What about the Devil's Reign? Would that fall into that? Borg no, no, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a theatrical. That's a theatrical. That's no, but, a, I'm ta- but I'm thinking about the 50s star that does the 70s movie. Yeah, but or yeah, well, but, yeah, but you know, the thing about it, yeah, I don't think it applies because the point of having a classy person or a classy actor from the 50s, like you know, your dad's actor, your mom's yeah. actor, like a Gregory Peck or a, a Charlton Heston, as opposed to say a Joseph Cotton, who had already been, who's been doing cheapy movies for a long time by that mm-hmm. point in time, was they were Charlton Heston, they were Gregory Peck. This could be a normal Gregory Peck, Kurt Douglas, Charles, uh, you know, a Charlton Heston movie until things start going weird. How would you explain to someone today who's used to seeing anything at any time what a '70s made-for-TV horror movie was? Because they were very, very special events yeah. as a kid, uh-huh. and also the fact that it was on TV. The challenge was, you know, how are they going to make it scary without making it graphic or gory? But there were some awesome ones. Well, one, they had they they had really good stories. Frankly, with the exception of things like and Carpenter did them, I and mean, a lot of a lot of directors did. Yeah, them. If, if you if you if you're discounting like studio ones like Carrie or Rosemary's Baby, and you're thinking more about Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or you know the you know or Squirm cool cheapy ones that mm-hmm. you know broke the mold there. With the, I mean, with the exception of the Tip Top of those. We like a lot of the ones that aren't the tip-top. But yes. With the exception of the tip-top, the TV movie horror films hold up better than a lot of the exploitation horror films made at the day. They were a little classier. They didn't really have any more time, but they had better actors, usually. And they had good stories, and they had some, like, graphic stuff. I mean... Do you uh, have a favorite? Uh, yeah, no, nothing really Bad competes. Ronald, yeah. No, no, uh, that's, a great, that's a great story. That's a great one, but nothing really competes, especially when it came out with The Night Stalker. Yeah. That first one, The Night Stalker. And what it was about those movies was the idea that, you know, you're a kid. These are definitely a horror film you can see. Not only can you see them, you can watch them with your parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless your parents had a problem with horror films. 
My stepdad certainly didn't. My mom. You know, I watch horror movies with my parents all the time. Yeah. So I watch. You know. So we all watched The Night Stalker. Thought it was amazing. Frankly, when they worked, whether it was Night Stalker or Bad Ronald or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, mm-hmm. they actually had a level of narrative drive that the exploitation movies never had. The exploitation movies were oftentimes very stop and start and stop and start. Uh, well, they had to drive so you wouldn't change during the commercials. Yeah, yeah. The adrenaline drive of the Night Stalker, you know, is like duel. I mean, it just doesn't stop. It just mm-hmm. keeps coming, and you just keep. And duel, and duel is. I mean, the greatest masterpiece. All right, it's very horrifying, but nothing supernatural happens. Right. You know? that, duel and Death he, Proof are interesting companion pieces. They are, they that would are. be a really cool double bill to show those they, two they, movies. They would, that would be, but like if, even in the Night Stalker, you walk around thinking the guy's crazy. He thinks he's a vampire. Mm-hmm. And they even use that in the trailer. He thinks he's a vampire. He, Vampire's he, Kiss, Nicolas Cage. And like little version. by little by little, you start realizing, oh, maybe he really is a vampire. And then you start realizing to like the degree of his prowess that you don't quite know in the first half of the movie. And he becomes almost seemingly indestructible. And that guy, Barry Atwater, did a great job mm-hmm. playing that vampire. He, he, was, he was amazing. But one of the things was, is you had those big splashy ads in the TV guide that would take over the whole page talking about it. And especially if it was an ABC movie of the week, they cut great trailers, they advertised it all week long, then you'd see it. And then if it delivered, like say that, or the witch doctor doll in Trilogy of Terror, Trilogy with of Terror Black, yep. you know, yes. that guy. If you watched that, then you went to back to school the next day, and that was what everyone was talking about. Yep. Yeah, that 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 was one of the things. You, you didn't read reviews or anything. No, like it's that. what everyone talked about in school. It was the next what morning, everyone talked about at school TV. the next day. And everybody was talking about the night stalker the next day. That's awesome. I wanted to talk about zombies just to the orgiastic violence of Dawn of the Dead, the first time I'd seen it, I had never seen anything like it. That was just that much chock full of gore, one after another. Yeah, yeah. And the ripoff of it, the fake one, you know, the the scene that the film that was seen as the lesser time is Fulci Zombie 2. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And yet over time, I keep going back and forth. I mean, Dawn of the Dead is a masterpiece, but Fulci 2 is always like the ignored cousin. Zombies 2 is always yeah. the ignored cousin. But the eye, do you remember seeing those two movies? Do you remember when you saw one or the other? Oh, do you yeah. have a preference of one or two? As good as I like Zombie 2, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Dawn of the Dead. I mean, I think Dawn of the Dead is a real masterpiece. You yeah. know? Zombie 2, half of it is a really bad movie. All right, <laughs> but, but take away the horrible Ian Richardson and his horrible balding, I don't know what the hell kind of come over thing yes. that he has in that. I mean, the, the only one is that it was really any good in is John Richardson. He's in a completely other movie. He's mm-hmm. in a much classier movie. Having said that, though, the level of gore was in a different area than the flowing blood and the flowing limbs of Dawn of the Dead. And there was no comedy wrapped up in there of like, you know, oh, the rolling head and then it lands on a bag that says shop at Kmart. All right, I mean, that was Romero's level. Uh, but just, you know, the whole Caribbean, West Indies mm-hmm. aspect of it all really creates its own mythology, all right? It gives it its own sense what of mythology. What has the old school zombie? The yeah. guy, the, the person trying to create a race of slaves. Yes, and then the fact that they truly are the decomposed bodies of dead black villagers. And then the true mayhem when they get their hands on you that they exude. And it's one of those movies that, well, you know, you have to suffer through a lot in the first 20 minutes, and it doesn't really get that much better for the next 20 minutes. 
But by that point in time, the story they're telling isn't so bad. And so you do get caught up in it. Once you're finally on the island, once John Richardson enters it, you actually are caught up in the story. And then it has a, a whiz-bang ending. The last yeah. 20 minutes is terrific. And a zombie fights a shark. And the, well, the zombie fights the shark is just one of the greatest moments in cinema history. All right, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's just one of the most, you know, cinema entre gens. Just like you, so outrageous, you can't believe what you're seeing. Am I really seeing this? Is this really happening? And then it, you know, and then it has one of the great money shots of all time, where yeah, the, the eye, eye into the, 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 the splinter. splinter. Yeah, literally, truly, you know, done like an opera aria. Literally set up like it's the show-stopping curtain number of an opera. Dawn of the Dead, do you remember, I mean, that movie, there's so many social issues in that film, but it was, as a kid, I remember the first 20 minutes watching it, when they go into that house, and they're so shooting the projects, other people, yeah. the projects, and one of the guys is super racist, and I was like, why is he concerned with racism? There's It's like a zombie outbreak happening. Yeah, 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 exactly. As a kid, yeah. I was like, I couldn't believe that that was being put in a film, and then it cuts to the greatest headshots I'd ever seen in a movie yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. Do you remember when you first saw that? Yes, like, I do. That and level I mean, of you remember it's that sequence. Also, the opening 20 minutes shows probably the most, to this day, most realistic version of a society under complete collapse. The television station. That television station. Somebody get that fucking asshole off the air. Yeah. <laughs> but the guy who's like the guy with the iPad. Oh, yeah, just going yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> they are dead. They will rise and they will kill. And the people they kill will kill. I mean, that is the greatest exposition actor of all time. Because yeah. he's also in the crazies and he gives the greatest exposition <laughs> in that, too. <laughs> He was definitely one of uh, Romero's real finds, that guy. So you, you just buy the complete breakdown of the society and what do we do and where do we go and what's going on. And not in this big, giant scale, World War Z kind of way, which I actually kind of like that movie. But I but, love World War Z. Yeah, but you know, in this real low budget margins of just like the media that's being projected on TV that you're seeing. And since it's all done in this public access-y kind of way, Romero kind of really nails it people just tendentially doing their job before their jobs become irrelevant and now they must survive. You know, you, you see Romero and all those people at the, at the control panel. At the control panel. With all the cigarettes, 70s control cigarettes. Yes, exactly. But you know, what were they doing the next day? I mean, were they hiding no, from the hills? Like were they being, or was the place just overrun by zombies? What happened to them, you know? Yeah. You know, to me, the head explosion didn't really do it for me because I actually think the coffee head explosion is even a little bit better, mm -hmm. frankly, because you, uh, yeah. you see the head in relation to her sawed-off shotgun yeah. and Pam Greer. The scene that makes you like wonder, oh, wow, can I even handle this, is when the zombie in the project, when uh, his wife, who's still alive, shoulder. comes to her and, and, and embraces him, my baby, my baby, and then she, he just bites just a chunk out of her shoulder. And it just looks real. You buy it. It looks yeah. if, if humans had shark-like mouths, that's probably the effect of what would happen if a sharky human bit you. And it's just an effect we had never seen before, and it draws a line in the sand. Oh, am I ready for the rest of this? this it's is, true. Yeah. And then the helicopter blade comes yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. And then the yeah. biker zombies. The, I remember the right. blood pressure yeah, yeah, machine, yeah, yeah, yeah. where the guy's just like beep beep, and then at the end, when it cuts back, and it's just the severed arm and the. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just the humor of that. Mm -hmm. But that was like, but also the idea of them 
the fantasy of like, what if you had a whole mall to yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But then also taking it to the point where you're trapped there and you're bored and it doesn't matter and the, the humans become zombies by losing their humanity. But then you also had the weird thing of like, they've kind of controlled their world. They controlled it and they've taken care of the zombies. They're outside. There's not a way in. They've kept them out. They're in. Then the biker gang shows up. And they're worse than the damn zombies. You know, okay, okay, this is human outlaw trash that has waited for society to take a flying fuck. All right, so it can just run rampant. And now they are, and they're running rampant. They're not even afraid of the zombies. They, you know, they make fun of the zombies. You ever had that moment where you're almost feeling sorry for the zombies by the mo because of the way the motorcycle gang is treating them. them? Yeah. <laughs> as violent as Dawn of the Dead was, it was like, I had seen it so many times by the time Day of the Dead yeah. came out that I was just like, how is he gonna top it? And then he does, with the chest being ripped open. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the yeah. effects of the day. Do you remember watching the yeah. first time you saw Day of the Dead? Oh yeah, saw it first show day, you. first show. Not first show, first day, first midnight show. <laughs> how was it? Yeah, it was me and all the guys from Video Archives went and saw it. We liked it, we were a little disappointed because you know it didn't top Dawn of the Dead. You know, So it's no dollars right. trilogy where, oh, yeah. okay, for a few dollars more, more tops, tops fistful yeah. of dollars, and the good and the bad, the ugly tops that one. It doesn't do that. In fact, it, it, go, it, it doesn't even try to, it goes underneath. It's more almost like a play, frankly. But it's a pretty good play. For years, I always thought, oh, poor Romero, because he had this big ver vision of the film and he wasn't able to yeah. do it, so this had to be what he could put together because he couldn't do his big vision. But then when I realized later that his big vision was all that Cabrini Green stuff. From Land of the Dead. Yeah, from Land of the Dead, I hated all that crap, so yeah. I actually think actually Dawn of the Dead was actually, Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead was better it, off without it. Well, Day of the Dead, you know, really has, it was slightly disappointing to us Romero fanatics at the time. All right, even though it did have one really cool thing about you still had the practicality of how you would deal in a world with zombies like this. When they have to do their testing mm -hmm. on zombies, the way they did it like a rodeo mm -hmm. or like a cattle dip. Yep. All right, where they brought them through the different mm -hmm. shoots all with the collar, right, the, uh, yeah. the Planet of the Apes kind of stick, collars on sticks. It made sense. There was a, just that weird practicality of, okay, well, this is just this the way is exactly the world is. exactly what it would do. So this is how we have to do it. The small scaleness of it and the fact that while some of the actors are really good in it, Lori Cardinalini is really terrific in it, as is Joe Platino, I think it mm -hmm. is, uh, who I use in, for a, a little bit in uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh -huh. Yeah, he's really good. This is what's supposed to blow off my socks. <laughs> All right, you know? <laughs> But then you had a lot of ham bones in there that yeah. were you know, just not up to the same level that there was in Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Dead. When Romero did Monkey Shines, it was interesting to watch him do a real Hollywood movie in the Hollywood system. And so he's using, like, you know, he's not using his Pittsburgh actors, he's not using famous actors, but he's using good actors. They're professional actors. And there was a Hollywood professional patina to Monkey Shines. It wasn't quite there in the other Romero movies. And it was nice to see that he could work that way. It was nice mm -hmm. to see him operate as a professional Hollywood director. I mean, a case could be made that I think, you know, Creepshow did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a better movie. That's what made George Romero such a terrific filmmaker, was that he was a legit regional filmmaker. And what made it special was the slightly homemade quality 
to the movie. And the fact you were seeing these actors in these roles. Yeah, that what you made it special was stuff. these, you know, there Scott were Reiniger, these. Dwayne uh, 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 um, Jones, all of them. Yeah, these, these Pittsburgh actors. Maybe I don't like the boyfriend and Jack's wife, okay? He's not that good of an actor. But Jack's wife is pretty good, right? Yeah. The, the witch woman, she's, she's quite good. Yeah, maybe the boring white and female leads in uh, The Crazies aren't so good, but Lynn Loring is good. The black guy, uh, army guy that descends in the helicopter at the end, he's good. The fat exposition guy mm-hmm. with the weird with glasses, the he's amazing, all yeah. right? He's, he's fantastic. Do you remember and like, Ken, like Ken Foray is probably like the most genuine actor actor. Yeah. Well, probably along with Galen Ross, but, yeah. but in particularly, uh, Ken Foray's kind of exists in a different world than the other three actors that are the main stars in that film. You spend so much time with them that their amateurness is the amateurness of the best kind because they're not, uh, you know, they're actors because they love acting. Yeah. By the time the movie's over, because we spend so much time with them, it actually becomes one of the better character studies well, in, the, in, the, in the history of horror films. We've spent so much time with them, they become us. Yeah. We love them like we know them because the movie's so damn long, we've gotten to know them. And then forget about probably the best performance in any Romero film is John Amplis as, mm-hmm. as Martin. He's amazing. I remember a screening that you hosted at your house for Shaun of the Dead. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. And it was one of the most raucous, yeah. fun, awesome screenings that we'd ever had, yeah. seeing that movie. It was fantastic, yeah. That was pretty cool. There is something about horror movies that when you see people you don't know, it feels real. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember in Berlin, when we were shooting Bastards, I got a DVD of a movie called Paranormal Activity. Mm-hmm. And I watched it, and I couldn't sleep. Yeah, yeah. And I gave it to you the next day, yeah, and I'm uh-huh. like, I'm telling you, if you watch this movie, you're not gonna sleep. The next day, you were like, "I couldn't fucking sleep from that movie." That yeah, was like, yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. Ouija board. That, do you yeah, remember yeah. that? But yeah, very but, much so. But yeah. part of that, way before anyone else heard about it, you had already given me the DVD of it. Yeah, we're, yeah it was that about, happens a lot actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, I was like your insider. I was on the film festival yeah, yeah, circuit yeah, yeah, yeah. and meeting directors. So I was getting slips. Dead stuff. in three days. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> but that was part of the thing of Paranormal Activity was it felt so real because you had never seen these people before, yeah, and it yeah. just like you got footage of what happened in someone's house. All right. Yeah. Do you remember that, watching that movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but actually what was interesting was having seen it and saw it, like, maybe about a year before it actually opened theatrically, it was fun going to a movie theater, watching it with an audience the first two weekends where they hadn't seen it, and I already kind of knew what it was. Mm -hmm. So to watch their reaction, and it was a great, great reaction. That, to me, is horror in its purest form. Mm -hmm. When someone makes a movie for $15,000 and they just use salt... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the demon hoof print, that yeah, was yeah. like... I know, yeah. It was one of the scariest things I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. I'm not normally scared by ghost movies, but I like them. Like mm-hmm. Ghost Story as a kid, uh-huh. because it had Fred Astaire and all these actors, yeah, uh-huh. and I knew that Dick Smith had done the makeup. Right. I was super into that movie as a kid. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you a ghost movie fan? I mean, Ghostbusters, for me, yeah. was like your Abbott and Costello. You know, yeah, like yeah, 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 Ghostbusters yeah. was that 80s version mm-hmm. of Abbott and Costello mm-hmm. meet the Wolfman. You know, it's funny. I'm not really super into ghost stories I mean oddly enough it's funny because it's like what about those grand gothic old horror films like The Innocents or The Haunting those early 60s we never doubted I've I've had everybody tell me since I was a little boy that The Haunting was the scariest movie they ever saw and it didn't scare me as a little boy 
and it didn't scare doesn't scare me adult. now. I mean, the only thing I like about it is, well, I actually, well, I'm a big Richard Johnson fan, so he classes up the proceedings a lot. I will give that. And Russ Tamblin just being a sarcastic jerk to everybody is always, always fun. Always fun. Always fun. There's never, that's never not good. But I think that movie is overrated. I, I think The Innocence is very pretty looking, but I think it's overrated. I think the whole, I've never read uh, uh, Turn of the Screw. Turn of the Screw, but I've never really cared for any of the movie versions of it. You know, Six Sense is a ghost story. That's a ghost story Six I like Sense a lot. Six Sense I love. Six yeah, Sense. I love. Did you did you see it coming? Did you see the twist? No, no, I didn't. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't. See totally it fooled by Six Sense. I'm not a fan of gothic horror. I'm not a fan of movies about the guy or the woman that lives in the castle and there's the painting on the wall and the painting on the wall is what's causing all the, the things, whether it be uh, uh, Lenore, Roderick Usher's wife uh -huh. in Fall of the House of Usher. As much as I'm a big fan of Roger Corman movies, I'm not a fan the Poe. of his Poe films. But Roger Corman, we interviewed Corman for this. Yeah. It was great. Which Corman do you love? You mean as a director, as a producer? Both, or as, as anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like was there a Corman? I mean, what he did making movies in two days, Dementia 13 and Little Shop of horrors and the exploitation, but the Roger Corman horror films were so much fun. No, I'm a big fan of all those three reelers that he would do with like his stock company of uh, of Dick Miller and Jonathan Hayes and Susan Cabot or Beverly Garland, whether it be Not of This Earth or uh, The Wasp Woman I like. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, actually, the one that I actually think is the best is Attack of the Crab Monsters. Yeah. That's a good movie. That's like a generally good movie, all right? Uh, and it has a great ending, and it builds to a great ending. Always a big fan of Russell Johnson, so to actually see him. Do you remember when you first, was that on TV? Yeah, was yeah, that Channel 5. Driving? Yeah. yeah, Channel 5. Uh, KTLA out here, uh, Channel 5 owned all the AIP films. Attack of the Crab Monsters usually did not play like at midnight or one on Saturday. It was always like a 4.30 in the morning show mm -hmm. or a 3.45 in the morning. It was the last movie on their movies till dawn. I remember the very end of it, you know, watch, staying up and watching it. And I was like, hey, that was a pretty good one. I, I liked the ending of that. That was pretty good. Yeah, so I really did like Attack of the Crab Monsters quite a bit. I like the whole concept behind Wasp Woman. Or I think that's kind of I think that's kind of cool. I'm not really a fan of his Poe stuff. I actually, frankly, prefer Vincent Price's movies in the '70s more. I, I prefer Doctor Fibes. Mm -hmm. I prefer Theater of Blood. I even prefer, frankly, and I might be alone in this, the Gordon Hessler Poe ones because they're they're more about something. One, they're not all stage bound. Danny Holler build just this much of the hallway because that's all I'm going to use, and just this much of the dining room because that's all I'm going to use. But when you look at something like the Oblong Box, all right, that you know that deals with slavery and white plantation owner, and it deals with really disturbing stuff, and it's like more violent, and it's not the set bound stuff that Corman specialized in in those Poe films. I think the exception to those Poe movies is Mask of the Red Death. Because one, he's not using Floyd Crosby again. He's, he's got Nicholas Rogue is this cinematographer. And he probably has the biggest budget he has on all of them. So his, his whole, and he was, I think he shot that in England. So the entire style like is exploded by the time he does Mask of the Red Death. And that's actually quite horrifying, actually. But it's, it's Price's sadism that's mm -hmm. horrifying. Not the post up. It's just the fact that he's such a sadistic ruler. Mm -hmm. is, what's, is what's terrifying. I remember in the 90s with Carnosaur, yeah. or I remember Frankenstein Unbound. The mm -hmm. it sort of, he sort of became known as doing the cheap knockoffs. Yeah, but, you know, but here's the thing, though. For the most part, in the 70s, when he's running New World Pictures, the films that he did that were the best 
were just straight up ripoffs. The Exorcist ripoff is a genre unto itself. The Jaws ripoff is a genre unto itself. The alien ripoff. And the alien ripoff is really a genre unto a, a, a itself. Piranha is one of the best movies that Corman produced for New World Pictures. It's got a great script by John Sayles. Joe Dante does a fantastic job. Paul Bartel. It's not his official directorial debut because him and Arkush did Hollywood oh, yeah, Boulevard, Boulevard together, but as far as a solo directorial debut, it's, it's a pretty great directorial debut. And frankly, the movie holds up to this day. We've shown it at the New Beverly, and like Sayles' script is really top notch. Well, it's very funny when it's supposed to be funny. The effects are surprisingly good, but it's also fucking disturbing I know. about how it's, it's actually children being fed to the piranhas, including one insert of like a piranha attacking the crotch of like a little girl, and he's totally burrowing in there. And you know, it's a little girl in a, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, inflatable tire. <laughs> I know, I know. I rewatched it because of, you know, Alex Aja's Piranha 3D. Yeah. I was like, I, we got to watch the old one. I was like, this is way more disturbing than I remember. Drastically more. And then I even told Aja, I go, it's got that great suspense beat where Bradford Dillman has to go down, he's got to turn the thing, turn the, the sewer valve that yeah. will like close off the river so it doesn't go off into the ocean. And now you got these piranhas everywhere. You know, there's no gauge or anything like that. So it's simply, she's got to count to 10, like one yeah. Mississippi, two Mississippi, or whatever the deal is. He can hold his breath that long. So she's counting it out. And then he's even doing it and the piranhas get him, but he's still, but still they're, going. They're eating, they're eating him, but he can still turn the thing and she's counting it off. That's a great suspense beat. And I brought that up to Ashley, goes, Oh yeah, then I watched that again. That's such a great suspense beat. Uh, we have to put that in the movie, but they didn't. Yeah, they didn't. That's the reason to remake the movie, is because that's such a good suspense beat. But then also, Dan O'Bannon, and I think Ron Shushit, that's the way you pronounce yeah, his name. Shushit. Wrote Alien to get a movie going with Corman. So they wrote, really? they wrote their version of what they th thought a good new world picture would be that could I be doable. Okay, it's all in a spaceship and da 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 da. And so they get it to Corman's people and they read it and they're interested, but they're not like snapping it up right away. All right, they're still they're thinking about it. All right. And somehow David Geiler and Walter Hill get it and they read it and they go, this script isn't really very good, but it's got a great idea and it's got a great premise. I think we could do this as a big movie. I think we could do, the, I mean, a s small movie for Fox, but a but big movie a for this movie, but we could really do a classy. And so they got in it. I think they made the script a lot better. They added the entire class consciousness. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they made Ripley a, a female mm -hmm. and they are the ones that added the whole class system mm -hmm. between the ship and a lot of other things. Walter Hill told me that part of the reason that they were even gonna do Alien is Fox had a setup at Pinewood Studios because mm -hmm. they had done Star Wars there, they had just done Empire Strikes Back. So they had this whole apparatus ready to go at Pinewood Studios with people who know effects. That's the reason we're gonna do it because we have that all set up there. So Walter Hill has decided I don't wanna direct it because I don't know enough about special effects, but I'll, I'll you know, godfather it. They offered it to all these people. They all turned them down. They offered it to one director after another. Each director kept turning them down. Walter talks about, we offered it 
to Jack Gold. Now, Jack Gold is actually a good director, but Jack Gold is famous for, you know, he's, he's like, he's a British TV movie director. Mm -hmm. One of his most famous theatrical features that played in America was his Robinson Crusoe movie, Man Friday, mm -hmm. with uh, Peter O'Toole and Richard Roundtree. But most of his movies are you know, really classy British TV movies. Jack Gold turned it down. And Walter was like, okay, when you've got a greenlit go film from 20th Century Fox and Jack Gold's turning you down, all right, you know you got a problem. And so they offered it to Robert Aldrich. And Aldrich said, yes, come meet me. So Guyler and Walter Hill go to meet Robert Aldrich. So this is like 1980. Yeah. Well, 79. And so they go to meet Robert Aldrich, and Aldrich is like, you know, big burly guy, and he's like, okay, so why aren't you doing it if it's so damn good? Well, I don't feel comfortable with special effects and, and, and stuff. I don't, I don't feel comfortable enough dealing in that world. Well, okay, I guess I can understand that. I don't have any problem with that. Well, I think you got a terrific picture here. I mean, I think, uh, uh, look, I agree. Story's very interesting. Story's great. You got a good movie. Yeah, we, we can scare the hell out of the audiences with this. It's a, it's a great setup, great story. What are we going to do about this damn alien, though? That's, that's what I got to say. I, mean, I don't want a guy in a suit. Don't want that. Now, it's impossible to contemplate alien without taking H.R. Geiger into effect and his concept of the mm -hmm. creature. But you have to put yourself in a world where that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. H.R. Geiger has not been hired. There is no drawings of the alien. They literally are figuring it out. And naturally, they come to the, you know, they come to the idea of a man in a suit and they go, oh, that's horrible. We can't do that. We can't do that. Aldrich had an interesting idea. It sounds preposterous, but I don't know what that would look like. His idea was, and he was just spitballing, but it was the idea of something weird. What if we took an orangutan and shaved it? <laughs> And we shoot inserts of him. Crawling and around. then that is That's the alien. The alien. That would Do be you cool. know what an orangutan without hair would look like? I don't. But, but speaking of orangutan, the monologue in Bastards about mm. King Kong with the card game. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Thinking about creatures that are apes. Yeah. When I first read that scene about was I brought in chains, was I brought in slavery. Yeah, yeah. It's so obvious now, but I had never put King Kong in that context. I don't know how you can. <laughs> I had never I mean, I, thought I believe about you. it. I'd see, uh, to yeah. me, as a kid, mm -hmm. it's the monster on top of the Empire State Building. Well, look, building. as I a kid, never, I was never big, thought I, I, as a child, I wasn't thinking about the slavery metaphor there. No, it was a Was big, that, what, was was that a big, one of your favorite he films? Was a, yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah, he was a big monkey, and I loved that big monkey. The movie would have to be more about a big monkey for it to have the pop cultural resonance that it has and the purchase that it has over the years. To me, once I became of age and I could see it, it's a complete metaphor for the tribulations of the black male in American white society. Weaving it in the card game mm -hmm. and in Glorious Bastards, but which you know, is, by the I way, think a lot of people saw Bastards and went, I mm -hmm. know a lot of people watched Inglorious Bastards, mm -hmm. and after that card game where he talks about King Kong and he yeah. threw the guessing, yeah. 
people went back and they rewatched the film in a way that they never had before. Well, but you I'm felt sure there's quite a few subtextual writers who've written about it before Bastards. But, but a lot uh, of people aren't reading those yeah, writers. No, I agree. A lot of people, I I'm not saying that you were the first one to write about it, yeah, yeah, uh -huh. but you were the first one to put it in a well, pop in a culture pop movie culture. that has nothing to do with King Kong or yeah, subtextual yeah. slavery. You're just watching this war movie and suddenly you get this nugget of information that really stuck with a lot of people. One of the things I think that's actually truly great about King Kong is I almost think it's a, and again, what actually makes this so meaningful is how much time and work was put into the movie to say that it's an accidental classic, a movie that required so much work. But I do think it is an accidental classic. The things that make King Kong truly great, I don't think are coming from Ernest B. and Marion C., the co-directors. I think they are coming from great white hunter racist vibe, which would fit in with the movies that they did before this. They're going into uncharted territory and filming these exotic lands, whether it be the Orient or Africa, very much making them, this is not civilization, these are the others, and aren't these others fascinating? And they're so not us. So uh, it was their inherent racism, well, then, or whatever well, that well, was. Well, rather than put it on them, but I do think that that is a bit of the case. I think Carl Denham is them, mm -hmm. and he is coming from a completely different place than where the soul of the movie is. They don't treat the natives with utter and complete contempt, but they treat them as, as non-human others, maybe not completely wrapped up in contempt, but they are treated Savages. as others yeah. to not be necessarily considered in any way, shape, or form. That's why they lead Kong right back to them. Even if you look at the relation, yeah, and, and just, you know, the way they just kill everything that comes in their path, like great white hunters without any worry about what they're doing in this island and how they're doing it. They're very bloodthirsty, especially considering that they're movie makers, not even hunters. <laughs> hunters. <Yeah. laughs> uh, they're just trying to make a movie. Even if you look at the entire buried inside of the idea that the natives have created a relationship with Kong, a relationship with Kong, that Kong is smart enough. He's not just a wild creature that doesn't know anything. Him and the natives have a deal that mm -hmm. every few years they will offer up one of their women to Kong to be a bride. It's not suggested that Kong eats these women, all right? They are made the bride of Kong. Now what that means, you can infer what they don't know and I who knows. But you see that there is a black young lady that's a member of the natives who's being prepared to be his bride. She's not terrified. She's accepted her place. It would suggest that it's an honor to be selected as Kong's bride. She is not, you know, she seems rather comfortable with the whole idea. It's not like she's going to be eaten. Mm -hmm. She doesn't come from that point of view. This is an understanding that the natives and Kong have developed with each other. There is a, a thinking brain inside of Kong that over the course of time has been reasoned with with the people. So you have that going on. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that actually bothered me when I was a kid and I think still bothers people to this day of how Kong defends Fei Ray at every step of the way. 
and she never appreciates it. She never sees it for what it is. She's terrified by the pterodactyls. She's terrified by the Tyrannosaurus Rex or whatever it is that he fights. But she's equally terrified by Kong. She never appreciates what he's, he's defending her. What he's done, what he does for her, and how he does it. So I think the true auteur of King Kong is Willis O'Brien. Because if you look at the original posters of King Kong, Kong is far more a monster. Mm -hmm. And like he has teeth that like, almost like saber-toothed yeah, tiger. Teeth, yeah, yeah. Canine, All right, and I'm sure every sketch, every drawing was done as a more monstrous Kong. That is how Marion C. and Ernest B. thought about it. But then Willis got a hold of it. And Willis got rid of all the monstrous touches. Almost every monstrous touch that is drawn and written for Kong is gone. And the whole idea, Willis, was to make him as human as possible. And especially filmed in black and white photography, if you're gonna make Kong as human as possible, it looks like a black male. They do everything they can to reduce the simian features and make them as human as possible. And they give him human-like emotions mixed with an ape's body language. Mm -hmm. But the emotions are the emotions of a human. And the face recognition is the face of a human. And so we respond to Kong not as a monster, but as a true character. We respond to him as a human character. That is why that movie is not just a movie about a giant monkey. It's a character that has survived uh, since the 30s as a pop cultural icon. Each remake of it comes out and within 10 years is made obsolete because all their special effects have moved on and now it's a whole different thing. But the original King Kong always will be a go-to to both film fans, children seeing the movie, anything. I mean, it's interesting, there's two approaches to monsters. You can humanize the monster or the monster can be monstrous, can be the worst part of yeah. ourselves. If you look at King Kong with a giant ape, then Hitchcock's The Birds, Mm -hmm. There's so many of them, they almost have no personality, but oh, yeah. they're, they're just relentless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw the birds with the school kids getting attacked. That yeah, was yeah, the yeah. most upsetting thing for me. That was all, that was, that was very scary. But then when you put, I remember Rod in Glorious Bastards, that was yeah, yeah. one of the coolest touches. But, but when they go to the diner and the woman says, you brought this upon us, like making the audience complicit. Yeah, 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 yeah. One yeah, of yeah. the most brilliant touches. Right, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Ask me that again. Okay, what would you um, what would you consider in the history of horror films the five best performances? Can be man and woman. I mean, okay, well, the supporting lead. It's interesting because I think of iconic characters, like I think of Elsa Lancaster in Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I don't think of that necessarily as brilliant acting, but it's but she's one an of icon. The, but she's an the icon, icon. Is yeah. Where you can't think but of that's any. That's not quite the same thing. Oh, okay, with the best performances. The, uh -huh. the best performances where you watch an actress, I would say, and it's not in order, Linda Blair, The Exorcist, Sissy Spacek, Carrie. I'll go for both of those. Dee Wallace and Cujo. 
I read that review, I, I, but I don't agree with it. But I mean, I, it's a fantastic performance. I don't think you can put her up with Boris Karloff, all right, as No, uh, Bella, okay, Boris Karloff is Frankenstein. Bella Lugosi. I, I, Bella Lugosi wouldn't make my list. Uh, he wouldn't make your list, okay. No, but Christopher Lee would make it, but I don't think, I'm, I don't know if I would... Uh, I think I would pick Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein before I pick. Uh, 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 I would pick Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a hard because you think of. Well, do I think Nick Castle as Michael Myers? But then, I think of the head turns, the you, body language. You, I'm not. I don't know if she'd make number five, but I think I think you could consider Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, uh, for sure, Jamie Lee Curtis. But then also, but but it's I, not as good as Mia Farrow. It's not as good as Mia Farrow, but Mia Farrow. <laughs> but to me. It's, I have different standards. Like, to me, it's not as good as, as Bruce Campbell, as Ash. What he goes through in Evil Dead, that physical... Well, uh, well, that, well yeah, like, especially, uh, yeah, no. And especially when you add Evil Dead 2, where when you, you have add, the whole thing and the slapstick comedy. You, All right, it's yeah. just like, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it would have to be Linda Blair. I mean, we can, can we say Robert Shaw and Jaws? Of course you can. But is that I mean, going to be? I, I think I, I think you're pushing it when it comes to. Uh, uh, That's like really great actors in a really good role in a movie. But Jack Nicholson in The Shining is another one of my favorites. Well, that would definitely well that definitely That's counts. It. That counts. Okay, okay. So what what are the five? Okay, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, Linda Blair in The Exorcist, Sissy Spacek and Carrie. Sissy, yeah, Sissy. Mm, I want okay. Jack Nicholson, Linda Blair, Bruce Campbell, and then I just like oh God, I love. <sighs> Gunnar Hansen or Boris Karloff? This is really hard. Oh, wow. I mean, yes, you okay, gotta say, fine. Well, Boris, I, I Boris. Don't, no, you don't gotta do anything, all right? <laughs> yeah, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, for sure. Mm -hmm. All three of the movies, yeah. Jack, I said Jack Nicholson. And then maybe Robert England as Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street. I think you're giving him some, a little bit more credit, but I'll, I'll I, buy that. that. I mean, that works. That absolutely works. Felissa I mean, Rose and Sleepaway Camp. I actually think Heather Langenkamp is actually better than Robert England in that movie. Heather Langenkamp's in May. Oh, tell me, yeah, Heather, Lang <laughs> Heather, Heather Langenkamp's in We interviewed but her. But I wouldn't, this. would I put her over... Would you put her over Mia Farrow and Rose? And Mia Farrow no, Rose I wouldn't. No, no way. And no way would I put her over Mia Farrow. No, Mia Farrow's too good in Rose. Yeah, Rose exactly. What are no, yours? No way. I what put, would you do? Put her over. Heather, uh, I think. I think you got to go with Linda Blair for sure. My question is, when do you stop counting Boris Karloff? Because Boris Karloff is just so great. So yeah, you can say Boris Karloff as the monster, but then you could also say Boris Karloff and five other movies as well. All right. Okay. We'll keep it to one role per hit. I think we have a lot of the same. I think it would be Linda Blair, Sissy Spacek, Boris Karloff as the monster. I guess I have to go with Mia Farrow. So then so the last one, it's is it Bruce Campbell? Is it Jack Nicholson? Is it is it Heather Langenkamp? No, it would, yeah, I know Bruce Campbell comes close. Betsy uh, Palmer? No, I wouldn't think Betsy Palmer. Jamie Lee Curtis? I'm going to regret this later, but I'm going to say Jamie Lee Curtis. You're, why are you going to regret it? Because I'm sure I'm going to come up with two that are like, oh my God, why didn't I say that? Okay, but ja right. oh, well, Jan <laughs> well, we, now we can just go, okay, is it Tippi Hedren and the Birds or Janet Lee and Psycho? Or Norman, well, what about well, Tony well, no, no, okay. We forgot about Tony Perkins. Fuck. Fuck Janet Lee is psych in Psycho, and but Anthony Perkins. Okay, Anthony Perkins is my fifth. Anthony Perkins. Yeah. But Anthony Perkins begats Janet Lee, which begat Jamie Lee Curtis. Janet Lee can hold a flickering birthday candle to Tony Perkins. No, of course not. But I'm saying, without <laughs> Tony Perkins' performance, we wouldn't have the shower scene. We wouldn't have Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, okay, but we're talking about performance-wise. Performance-wise, Anthony, yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. the fact, For in, sure. in, in no, real no, no. life, 
Janet Lee is only okay in that movie, and she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and Anthony Perkins wasn't nominated. He wasn't? No, he wasn't. Do you I mean, remember? So you can't even like say, oh my God, I can't believe Anthony Perkins wasn't nominated. And then you realize, oh, it's worse than that. Janet Lee was. But what about- And I actually think maybe his best performance is, he's maybe even a little better than Psycho, Psycho 2. 2. Richard Frank, yes, of course. <laughs> oh, Halloween. Jamie, we got to mention Jamie Lee Curtis' performance in Halloween. No, it's 19 years old, and with who her mom is, she comes in and gives yeah. one of the great performances ever. She's amazing. One of the, you know, you know, she started, truly started the final girl, mm -hmm. the real final girl aspect. All right, and she carries that movie on her broad shoulders. Frankly, to tell you the truth, if Jamie Lee Curtis were to make the top five or extended to six, it would be her performance in Halloween H2O. Really? I tried to talk Bob Weinstein into pushing for an Oscar campaign for her in Halloween H2O. I thought she was amazingly terrific in that movie. She didn't have anything to prove anymore. She was already a star. She was already an icon. She had grown into her persona in this really cool way. And watching this grown woman deal with Michael Myers was pretty terrific. I thought she was fantastic in that movie. And it was as if it truly felt, unlike other movies, it truly felt like a full circle had come. The only- well, she's, she's in the new one, the David Gordon Green one. That's what I playing, hear. Playing Laurie Strode. That's what I hear. The only taint, and it does have a taint, all right? And Kim Newman, the genre critic, agrees with me that in Halloween 2, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter do the cheapest thing just to throw a little whammy in the movie and they make it that uh, Laurie and Michael Myers are brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And that taints every single Halloween sequel that happens afterwards because he's not her brother. She's not his sister. That's just bullshit. That literally was them coming up with a stupid idea at the last minute. Well, it's their it's their Empire Strikes Back. I'm your father. Yeah, but it's it's no, but it's the the cheapest thing. Nobody was coming from that point of view when they were making the first one. And what makes the first one so good is the fact that you don't know what it is that makes Michael Myers go Lock her. In. Yeah, it's not a sister thing. Frankly, I think when it comes to child performances. One of the best child performances in any horror film, right up there with... Uh, Patty Duke in The Bad Seed. Patty Duke in The Bad... No, no, that's Patty McCormick in The Bad Sorry, Seed. Sorry, Patty McCormick in yeah. The Bad Seed. And then there's uh, that really cool young girl that's in Curse of the Cat People. She's terrific, mm -hmm. too. Danielle Harris. Yeah, Danielle, yeah. In uh, Halloween's four. 4 and 5, all right, as the thing. But she's terrific in it. But it's tainted because everything sister. is working from the assumption and same thing with H2O. Everything is working from the assumption that Laurie and Michael Myers are brother and sister, and that's just cockamamie bullshit. That's not what it is. I want to talk about the latest horror phenomenon that is now the highest grossing R-rated horror movie of all time, It. Mm -hmm. Did you see it? Mm -hmm. What was it about It that do you think caught fire? Because to me, it was not the scariest movie. No, it definitely But the opening, not. that opening Well, it, the opening is a masterpiece. The, the opening is the, the sewer, the, the sewer sequence, there is a reason why it's like the scene that created a thousand parodies, because it's that good. And it becomes that recognizable. No, the opening scene is a no, is a masterpiece. I, I don't think the movie I, I only think the movie's okay. 
But what is it about the clown? The clown, the, well, I mean, the monster I, I, clown. But the, 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 your first question was, why is it that why is it, it the, called the highest grossing horror film? Well, why did time? it catch on? Why yeah. did it catch on and really become a thing? I think it is actually the fact that as time has gone on, it's the book. I think as time has gone on, even more people have read the book and the book has actually reached a classic status mm -hmm. that it didn't have in 88. And it's one of those books that even if you didn't read it, you heard about it. Yeah. You knew somebody who read it. You might know somebody who was reading it. You know, oh my God! Then, then, then uh, this is where where we're at, where I'm at now. Ooh la la! You know, and uh, without anyone paying attention, other than the people that decided to make the movie, no one realized the pop cultural currency that Pennywise had, and the entire concept of it had. I didn't ever read the book. When I watched it, I was like surprised. Oh, okay, well. Yeah, I can see that the guy who wrote, you know, The Body, a.k.a. Stand By Me, well, this is that writer, and then he's adding a thing to it. But I think it's very naked what it is. It's like the it is basically Stephen King saw Nightmare on Elm Street and did his ripoff of it. The book It is, a, is Stephen King's ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, he just replaces Freddy Krueger with Pennywise. And it's just exactly like, oh, okay, he sees Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, wow, that's a really neat idea. Oh, that's really clever. Okay, that's cool. Well, let me take that idea and let me do my version of it. Now, his version of it is going to be a 560-page novel as opposed to one-dimensional characters, at the most two-dimensional characters. He's going to have four-dimensional characters. And the whole history of every one of them as far as the kids and the relationships with their parents and their parents' relationships in the town and the whole town will be a thing you know he's a terrific writer in that regard so he fills it full of minutia and he films it fills it full of his good prose and he fills it full of his good writing which is what Wes Craven didn't have take away all that cake frosting and all the little frosting flowers that are put on it and all that it's basically a ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street Interesting. Just baked inside baked of a gigantic thousand-page cake. Thousand-page cake. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, also in the movie, the movie's a little dull. All right. You know, at a certain point, those kids aren't that interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite buy their final triumph over Pennywise that much. Now, if you've talked to anybody who's read the books, now I'm just repeating yeah. what they're saying, I haven't read the book, everyone acknowledges that splitting it in two was really kind of the only way to go about trying to tell the story. However, anyone who's read the book says it's a travesty to the book because it's the juxtaposition between oh, the adults too. versus the kids and the adults and back and forth is what makes the book so readable and mm -hmm. what makes the book so good. It's structure itself that made the book such a beloved horror novel, but the movie can't do that. Having said all of that, I only thought the movie was okay. And I didn't really care that much for any of those kids. I'm really looking forward to the sequel. I want <laughs> to see how the story ends. I haven't read the book. I'm really curious on who they cast as yeah. the adults with the kids. And I really do want to see how it turns out. And I don't know anything about how it turns out, but I have been told that it's far more horrible than I could have ever imagined, that what happens to the adults is truly 
fucked up and uh, that's almost unimaginable. And I'm, I've considered watching the miniseries so I can just see how it ends and not have to wait for the other yeah, movie. But I think I'm going to hold out for the next movie. <laughs> All right. And the last thing, I think of horror as the purest, I don't know if you do, I think of horror as the purest form of cinema because it's one of those genres where you can get away without logic and just imagery. It represents our nightmares. Is there one thing you think about horror as to why people just love it and why it is the genre that truly never dies? I don't think most people are walking around thinking about this, but I agree with you. I mean, there is an aspect to horror that it is, you know, there's a pure cinema aspect to it. The camera is important. It's cinema. It's not just about shooting the dialogue. You've got to create a mood. You have to create a setting. And the camera can be another character. And I'm not just even talking about whipped POV shots. I'm just saying the camera is important. I don't think Brian De Palma is quite as enamored with Hitchcock as people say he's enamored with Hitchcock. He was enamored with Hitchcock's cinematic vocabulary and he was a student of that cinematic vocabulary. And he started his career making counterculture hippie mm -hmm. movies. And he read the writing on the wall very quickly that that was dead by 1970. De Palma has been very conscious about not wanting to make art films and then not being allowed to make movies. He knew he needed to make movies in a commercial genre. So what would that commercial genre be? One can imagine action films to some degree. I mean, I can imagine a Brian De Palma Rolling Thunder. I can imagine a Brian De Palma Freebie and the Bean. I mean, I can imagine, I can imagine some of those with Brian De Palma, but I don't think De Palma knew what that commercial thing was, the commercial genre he could thrive in. De Palma doesn't really seem that overly enamored of too many of his contemporary filmmakers. I think when Brian De Palma saw Polanski's Repulsion, I think he was gobsmacked. I think he watched Repulsion, which was sold like Psycho, not since Psycho. That was the tagline, not since Psycho. Have you seen something like this? And by the way, it wasn't exactly like Hammer Horror Films weren't coming out with a not since Psycho. Mm -hmm. Forget about William Castle. William Castle and Hammer were coming out with Psycho ripoffs left, right, and center for the next eight years. But there was something different about Repulsion. And when he saw Repulsion, it was like, oh wow, this little Polish fucker has cracked the code. He's figured out how to make a Hitchcockian thriller, but for a new, more sophisticated, younger audience. Hitchcock's films hinted at being disturbing. They glanced at being disturbing. The point of Polanski was it for it to be disturbing. It was Hitchcock by way of Bunuel with a great actor's director attached to it, all right? So you have this magnificent performance from Catherine Deneuve. Uh, Deneuve right at the center of it. Then add to the fact that all this disturbingness is gonna lead to a grislier outcome and a more graphic outcome than a, a Hitchcock movie ever would. So I think he saw Repulsion and he was like, wow, this, guy figured it out. He completely figured it out. This is Hitchcock for a new audience. This is Hitchcock for a new age. He's made it very clear that he thinks everything that Hitchcock did after Psycho can be thrown in the garbage, including the birds. He's like, oh, 
This guy figured it out. And then when he turns around and makes Rosemary's baby, then De Palma is like, oh, well, that's that. Well, that's that then, okay. There's a new king of, there's a new master of macabre and his name is Roman Polanski. That is what time it is. This guy is the guy. Then what happens next? The Manson family. And they kill his wife and they kill his unborn child. And as Don McLean would say about uh, Bob Dylan, the jester is on the sidelines wearing a cast. So he's out of the picture. And in 1970, Dario Argento comes out with the bird with the crystal plumage. I'm positive that De Palma does not put Argento in the same category he puts Polanski. I'm sure he thinks he's schlocky. Having said that, again, Bird with the Crystal Plumage was sold at not since Psycho kind of thing with the graphics and everything. And again, all leading towards a more disturbing thing than Hitchcock would ever do. All leading to a more graphic outcome. The graphicness that was always implied in a Hitchcock movie is now shown in an Argento movie. And what Argento, I'm sure as far as De Palma was concerned, what Argento did right, as opposed to Truffaut and Chabrol, which I'm sure De Palma would consider thrillist thrillers. Mm -hmm. Oh, the idea to do Hitchcock is to follow his plots, <laughs> not his set pieces, forget that. Was Argento did do set pieces. Mm -hmm. He did Hitchcockian set pieces inside of the movie, and he pulled them off, and it was a smash. Well, you know, in exploitation circles, mm -hmm. it was a smash. So, with Polanski showing the way, and him, well, I guess that's the guy, but now the guy is taken out of the picture. Uh, through, through tragedy. Through tragedy. So he stops making movies for the unforeseeable time. Yeah. Tr tragedy, he's sidelined, truly sidelined. You know, a great football player, his knee shattered. Mm -hmm. He's off on the sidelines. Picking up where Polanski left off, again with the psycho thing, and pulling it off is Argento. And that leaves a commercial place for De Palma. And so he writes his psycho, and that's Sisters. And AIP releases it. And now, you know, the commercial genre at that point, horror film, horror film slash thriller, but in the case of Sisters, it's sold more like a horror film. That's a commercial niche for him. And part of the thing is because of Hitchcock, people will accept cinema first in a thriller in a way they won't accept it in a love story, mm -hmm. in a way they won't accept it in a period drama, in a way they won't accept it in almost most every other genre. genre. Because Hitchcock taught people to be thinking of cinema first in terms of a thriller, we're just naturally okay with the camera taking off and doing things. And De Palma, as much of a result of Polanski and Polanski being taken out of the game. That's my feeling. That's my speculation. And then there's De Palma, then you're influenced by De Palma, mm -hmm. and then you take that cinematic approach and apply it to all genres while cross-pollinating genres. Yes. But never, never in the straight-up thriller mode, all right, the way De Palma did, or even in the horror film mode for but the But what part, yeah. the techniques but that yes, De Palma you know, the applied to a thriller, no, you was, applied uh, to a drama. Yes, exactly. I was arguably as influenced by De Palma's visual style as he was influenced by Hitchcock's visual style. Amazing. And I was influenced by your style. <laughs> and that's how we get hostile, too. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome. All right. We're so good. Dude, you're the best. Cool. Fucking nobody contextualizes it. No, there's, there's just nobody that, that like, does the stuff like you. It's really, it's such a, I just, it's just so awesome. The fans are going to see it in 
Oh, thank it's you. It's such, such a pleasure. I mean, the fans are gonna, it's gonna, people are gonna get so much out of this. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of First Publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut.